Well, this has been a very exciting week, Russ. And not because of anything that happened. It was everything that went into my ears. That was so good. Lots of swinging. Yeah, there was lots of swinging in the uh, jazz category. And I, in fact, I should tell you, I listened to those uh, those recordings first. And um, I was in the in the classroom, and you know, as the as the students were coming in, I was just had my headphones on. I was just bopping around, and they were all kind of laughing at me because uh, you know, young Japanese people. You know, we live in Japan, of course, listeners, and uh, young Japanese people. They seem to think that um, adults have no reason to be happy, so they always find it amusing when they are. And they're they're all kind of smiling and laughing at me. I don't know. I guess that's I don't right. Know. Once you become an adult, you're supposed to. Stop I think enjoying. you're supposed to work till you die here. Yeah, just keep working. Not having I don't any know. fun. They seem, they seem, older people seem, you know, they seem to be fairly content to me. But I don't know, young people, I think they just don't imagine old people as being happy. I think they might imagine themselves as old one day and they don't think that's such a good thing. It's actually pretty cool, I got to say. I they just can't run fast anymore. The joys of adulthood and adult music. Yeah, like losing your hearing. <laughs> losing your hearing. Yeah. I do wish I had the brain I have now with the hearing I had back then. You know, yeah, but, by the time um, you can afford you those that speakers, high frequency, you know, those speakers that you wanted, doesn't really matter yeah. anymore. Uh, once you get up, there, I know. I you, you, yeah, well, you can afford the the big, uh, powerful. You know, not just powerful, but um, high res, I guess, or just um, speakers. Yeah. And, Normal uh, res. <laughs> you can't hear them. It becomes like it's. It's kind of like you're hearing your old uh, Fisher Price stereo again when you. <laughs> <laughs> when you were a yeah. kid. Fisher Price. Yeah. Yeah, by the way, yeah. did, you, did you hear that, um, you know, remember those Fisher Price phones? Like from the, you know, when we were babies really and children, we had these. I had one. Mm-hmm. Do, do you, do, did you, do you know this? You know what I'm talking about? Um, I remember just all this the kind Fisher, of like Price Fisher Price toys, yeah. toy phone and you uh-huh. would kind of, you know, pretend to talk to someone on it. It's just okay. plastic, you know? Right. But now they're making it into a real phone. Oh, really? That design. Wow. What have we come to, Russ? I don't know. <laughs> That's what I'm I guess um That stuck in my head when yeah, I read it I'm this trying time. to trying to think what the um mm. the draw would be with that. Definitely form well, over function, but Well, it, it it doesn't it doesn't speak well to um for our podcast getting a lot more listeners. Let me just say that. Mm. <laughs> kind of going for these childhood things, you know, cuz yeah, we're trying maybe to we should them. release on an older format or something. I don't know. Older format, you think? Or retitle it Juvenile Music or something. Juvenile Music? Ah, this, I don't know. There's yeah. a lot of that. I'm not that going back. Makes a lot Can't of money go already. back and don't want to anyway, so. Yeah. Come on, we're going to make, we're going to make the whole world adults. We have a, we're, we're on a mission. That's right. For the mature mind. Yeah. Music for yeah. the mature mind on adult music. Actually, I, I was listening this week to all those uh, Vikingar Olofsson uh, recordings. I uh, yeah. picked up all those discs, so uh, I realized something interesting. Um, they're all good, yeah. They're all good. Uh, in the few places that remain where you can buy uh, new discs, compact discs, uh, that right. have any kind of uh, classical selection in Japan, you know, they all have the uh, Japanese releases, which right. have the translated you know, uh, jackets and um, yeah, and because songs. of that, you have to pay like yeah, you have to pay thirty percent more. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's kind of uh, depressing that no place has because it's you know bad enough reading and interpreting you know all Italian things if you're you know an English speaker or if you're a musician and familiar with music 
Italian is the language of music, so right. you know what all these things mean. But even if you read Japanese, reading those musical terms in Japanese is like one more step removed from right. uh, what's familiar to me, and I have to pay extra for it. You know, so I just ordered yeah, them. Not only that, they don't translate those terms; they just kind of sound them out in the yeah, they're they're phonetic, the phonetic language, you know. So. Yeah, right. so anyway, I got the uh, European releases, so I've been listening to So you got to gotta figure out what it is, because it's not an actual Japanese word. It's just sort of a phonetic yeah. rendering of the of the Italian word or the German word or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, and I, and I want to pay yeah. extra for that. So. Uh, yeah. so I was listening to those a lot this week. And uh, then we've got some interesting uh, selection of classical music. And we've got a uh, big do. band blowout, booze up. Yeah. For we which, got the whiskey, the bourbon, the bourbon going is, again. Our favorite bourbon for this uh, episode. This is a Knob right. Creek single Knob's barrel. Creek. Who they are not sponsoring us. We are just delighted we're by their product. We're sponsoring them. That's right. Yeah, we're helping so. them. They should they should throw us at least a thank you, <laughs> if anything. That's Send right. us a free bottle or something. Send us a free know. bottle. Support the podcast. Support the podcast. And, Can people uh, support the podcast? Well, they can write to us, I guess. You can write to us. Uh, yeah. Please support the podcast. Uh, I'll tell you about that right now. If you're listening to us speak on whatever platform you're on, uh, you can find links to the music we're going to talk about tonight for Spotify and Apple Music, the two most popular platforms. Uh, those are in the description uh, for each recording. Also, there's a link there to our preferred streaming platform Deezer that's a full episode playlist so all the music compiled in one place you can listen to it at one click uh, you can follow us there uh, where our podcast is on Deezer as well and uh, Adult Music Podcast is our username and all the previous podcast uh, listening playlists are there as well uh, if you can't see a description of any of uh, those links or the links don't work because uh, they're not active on youtube and some other places uh, come on over and check us out on our host site podbean where everything is easy to see and the links are all active now if you hmm. do enjoy the podcast uh, or the music please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on and uh, take a moment give us a ranking or write a review that helps us get into the browsing category for each platform which yeah, has to turn... be a good review so theoretically you'd be supporting us <laughs> yeah good review <laughs> write a bad review if you want uh, I don't care I guess but that hurts yeah. us at the beginning if, if, we're, the if beginning. we're Joe Rogan size they can write bad reviews it won't really yeah, we, have, you know. we only have good reviews so far that's so, good yeah I'm happy uh, to anyway any of that kind of stuff helps us grow our audience because it pops us up into the browse categories and uh, send more eyes see the adult music yeah. logo. My and family listens to this podcast and none of them listens to classical or jazz or really music, really any music. They just kind of casually oh. listen, I think, to what's popular, I guess, or what they like. Right. But it's not classical or jazz. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. So hopefully yeah. we're making things accessible or interesting. Yeah. Uh, and beyond that, if you have uh, any comments or questions, uh, don't hesitate to write to us directly at our email address, Adult Music Podcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear yeah. from you. We'll get back to you. And uh, yeah. Interesting yeah, I want to mention. Say. Yeah, one of the exciting things that I have, I mentioned that uh, today's program for me is exciting. There's a lot of this great uh, big band jazz. 
we have the, the, the booze going and the classical stuff was all really interesting too. But I've got like classical recordings to Christmas, you know, you know, we, uh, I've got so much that I want to talk about. There's been a, there've been a lot of pretty uh, interesting releases and I'm really looking forward to hearing them all. So I'm getting kind of uh, excited about the coming weeks and the, um, the coming podcasts that we're going to yeah. do and, and all the listening we're going to do too. I got to tell you, it really lifts me up hearing all these records all week long. I'm at work. It's, I'm bopping away to my big band. Everybody's it's nice happy. to have a lot to listen to. Yeah, it I've is. been listening all over the place. Yeah, and, it's um, kind of a. Yeah, I'm interested to see. Uh, right now, our number one uh, listening percentage is on uh, Pandora, which we can't yeah. access from Japan. So it's well, kind of interesting. You, get a v- so, you should get a VPN. I think we I could, could probably get a VPN and check it out. VPN and sign out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just interested we- about why more people can find us there. Uh, in yeah. uh, comparison to I'm the cur- other I'm curious to see if they're reviewing us there and what they're saying. We yeah, can't, could be. You actually yeah. can't sign on to that site. No, I can't sign on from, from Japan. Here. But, uh, <laughs> I did get us out there, so. Well, we could yeah. if we, I think a VPN would get us in, but um, I have a I VPN. Know. I should look. I don't yeah, know. Check it out. I'm just inter- right. interested in what the interface looks like. But um, anyway, right. if you're on uh, Pandora listening to us, thanks very much. And uh, we've got some... Uh, more increase in UK listeners too, which is nice. That's good. And, uh, they're Japan big, is uh, number classical, two. They're a big classical and jazz audience there. They've yeah. got a lot of good uh, publications as well. I still read Gramophone. I'm looking at Jazzwise now too. Yeah, so Jazzwise a lot is of British sometimes. Yeah, yeah, they have some British um, uh, jazz acts that I otherwise wouldn't know about. It's it's it's. Right. I like that about them. Because the American ones downbeat. They write about mostly Americans. You know? Yeah. India yeah. is still number three. Uh, so we've got uh, right. a lot of repeat Indian listeners. So thanks for listening to us in India. We're going to get some Indian musicians, at least, uh, on the podcast uh, eventually. Uh, in, uh, Indian in, jazz musicians, you mean? Probably, yeah. In, in probably, jazz. most uh, likely. Yeah, there are several that I follow. So as soon as some new releases come out. Uh, okay, now, theoretically, we, we called this podcast Adult Music because it's music for adults, and that means classical and jazz as far as Western music goes. But we have this idea that there's going to be a lot of uh, world music on it and also just popular music that adults would enjoy, okay? Sort of, well, I don't know if that's popular, if, you know, only adults like it. But um, no, I don't, And I don't mean easy listening. I just w- well-written songs, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and well played, you know, things like that. We were thinking like Tedeschi Trucks Band or people like that. People, you know, could be that we, we would still we'll listen be to. Expanding beyond just the jazz and classical category when we. Well, well that's feel the, the thing, though. It's turning out that there's so much good jazz and classical that we can't yeah. get away yeah, from yeah. it. Yeah. So it's, it's just become this thing. And not only that, but it's our area of expertise. Another thing I've noticed that if we were to do, say, um, there have been a, a few good recordings I've heard this year of like music from Africa. And uh, they would have been good to talk to about. But um, in order to talk about them, I need to do a lot of research because this isn't music that I kind of, you know, I'm very familiar with. So I'd have to kind of figure out, like, you know, what's going on there. Right. And uh, it would take a lot of time, which we really don't have. So I think it's better. It's kind of safer for us to be in our our area of expertise because we have, like, all this, like, background and sort of history to draw on. Whereas here we'd have to actually start from nothing and sort of figure it out. It will stay you know, with even the main like, vein mostly, I guess. So. You know, like I remember in college, I, I studied a little bit of, uh, not, I didn't play it, but I mean, I studied a little bit of how like Indian raga are structured. And I know a little bit about that, but it's still not enough that I'd feel comfortable 
talking about a performance. I mean, there's a whole history of performance behind that. And yeah. I wouldn't, I don't know anything about that. So it, it would be nice to have someone, you know, who kind of knew something about it to, to, to guest, um, to guest host, I guess, if we ever decide to do that. You we know? could get a Ragaman expert to <laughs> be our guest host. We might have to do that. That would be cool. Anyway, right. well, anyway. To, anyone wants to apply, let us know. Um, there's For no this pay. episode. We don't make any money. <laughs> yeah, we don't make any money. Meat Not and yet, potatoes. Anyway. <laughs> meat and potatoes, classical and jazz as usual. Right. So what do we have on the classical lineup here? All right. Well, before we start with the recording, I need to announce uh, Dutch conductor Bernard Heitink died this week at the age of 92. Ooh. And he's really he conducted the Royal Concert Gebouw in... Uh, uh, Holland, for, or what is it now? The Netherlands, they like to call it now, um, among many other orchestras. And um, I, I can't really do a an obituary of him, but I wanted to mention it because I still have, especially, I have a few memories of seeing him live uh, conducting back in the 80s. I remember this really memorable Brahms Second Symphony that he did at Boston Symphony Hall. Um, it was really exciting. I, I remember it drew a standing ovation at the end. Really great. And um, I still, one of my most treasured recordings is his um, recording of the uh, Debussy orchestral works, especially the Nocturnes. I used to have, um, the, it was two discs originally, and now it's like been re-released as one single uh, two disc set at a bargain price. So, and those are still um, among my favorite recordings of the Debussy Orchestra. They really haven't been surpassed, especially the Nocturnes. So, if you want to get a really great recording from the past, you should uh, check that out. Debussy Orchestra Works, conducted by Bernard Heitink. May he rest in peace. Rest in peace. Long career. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a long career and a long life, too. Those conductors are uh, very long lived. So are pianists. They tend to live a long time. Mm-hmm. Must be something to that. Someone, someone mentioned. I'm going to mention this because it might be a little uh, woo-woo, but um, people say that it's it's interesting that of all musicians, conductors and um, pianists seem to live the longest. But if you think about it, both of them um, spend most of their working lives with their arms spread out sort of like the Jesus statue in Rio de Janeiro, you know, because they're huh. conducting or they're playing the piano. And somebody had suggested that might be a, um, it might allow the flow of Chinese chi energy to um, hmm. flow through your body and prolong your life. Um, I don't, there's no science backing that up whatsoever. I'm doing but, my uh, orangutan kind of thing, as you see. Yeah, just you could do that too. Out. But uh, anyway, you might want to try that, anybody. Uh, if you play the piano, might, be. you might be uh, making your life longer. Is typing on a keyboard you can approximate add, the motion? You can add years to your life by conducting an orchestra or playing the piano. Hmm. So um, there's no scientific evidence backing this up, but uh, it's just an observation, and you might want to think about it. Yeah. Hmm. Why not try it out? Play the piano. It's a, it's a good new hobby. Yeah, I mean, or when you listen to all hmm. these tracks on the playlist, you know, instead of air guitar, do a little bit of, you know, air conducting. Air piano? Air See conducting. Can, yeah, figure out the uh, meters and... Uh, Cue in the sections. I tried that. That makes me tired. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to do. Yeah, I'd rather just sit there with the bourbon and listen to it. So, Yeah, me too. Uh, we're definitely getting old here. Okay. But I was actually like that in college too. <laughs> All right. Anyway, let's get to the uh, music. We uh, the, uh, I have um, my ideal sort of um, 
programming lineup this week. I've got a Baroque um, mm -hmm. recording. I've got a romantic. A, uh, yeah, I've got a romantic, classical romantic, so something from that, the the uh, golden age of really classical music. Although you could say the Baroque is that too. And then I've got a contemporary composer, and I that's what I that's my ideal. I try to get that right. when I can. I want to do more contemporary composers because um, I'm a little fed up with people saying, "Oh, you know, classical music is dead people music." It's not. There are still people composing it. Yeah, and uh, I think rap we should music, be listening to that music. Rap music is dead people music because they really it, shoot each other or something. Like that. Well, yeah, there is that. Um, th that's funny you should say that because uh, I'm going to mention something in this on this first recording. That's uh, oh, is there a drive by in the uh, in the Baroque you know, period? In a way, let me let me kind of okay. let me tell you about this. Okay? Um, okay, well, our first album is a Baroque is a recording of Baroque era music called Stilus Fantasticus. Now that Fantasticus is spelled with a PH at the beginning in the Greek method. Okay, and uh, the uh, performers are we have a Baroque violin soloist uh, Tekla Cunningham, and a group called Pacific Music Works, conducted by Stephen Stubbs. Well, he's the artistic director, and he also plays, I think, uh, guitar on the recording as well. He's the guitarist in this very small ensemble. I think it's f well, it's four people plus Tekla Cunningham, so five people or six people. I'm not really sure. And this is on reference recordings, not a very it's you know, it's, a, it's a fairly small music label, mm. so uh, please support them and uh, get this uh, recording. It's because it's very good. It's I think it's very good because this is I chose this because this is uh, mostly this style of writing. This is the early Baroque era, uh, before Handel and Bach really brought it to its peak, and really Vivaldi as well. Um, when the music was kind of finding a form, and it was very different than it was like when Bach got his hands on it and handled. Yeah, these break out yeah. of the format and surprise you a lot as you listen to these pieces. Well, that's the thing. There's no formula. Yeah. What Steelus Fantasticus means, um, there was a. It was defined by this um, Jesuit priest named Athanasius Kircher, who lived from 1602 to 1680, and. He said it's a form of music appropriate to instruments as opposed to singing, okay? So people in the past, I guess we still do this, um, thought of music as music to be sung, cantata, or music to be uh, played, sonata, suonata, or sonata became, okay? So the, uh, you hear the expression sonata for a movement of music or, a, or piano work, and it really means like, the original word means less sounded or, you know, it's just no singing in it is what it means, but then it came to take on another meaning, which is interesting in, in itself. But in the Baroque era, it just means like sounded music as opposed to sung music. Um, and he calls this the free and unfettered method of composition bound to nothing. Oh, sounds very Zen to me. Um, I like things that are bound to nothing, so it's free. What he means by that, though, it's not bound to words like masses are. So if you're... Um, if you're writing a mass, the form that your music is going to take is going to be dictated by the words that you're setting, right? You have to get all those words in, so the the music is going to sort of mold around that. And it's also not um, 
beholden to a harmonious subject. The music that you write is not beholden to some harmonious subject that needs to be developed. It's organized according to manifest invention, the hidden reason of harmony, whatever that is. Hmm. <laughs> and the, the, I'm reading now from the uh, this guy's uh, writing here. And the ingenious, skilled connection of harmonic phrases and fugues. Yes, we get a lot of that. Uh, so shifting textures and unexpected harmonic changes are frequently found in these works. And boy, you're going to hear a lot of that. Uh, early Italian composers mostly engaged in this style. It was very exciting, um, but its influence was felt throughout Europe back in the day. And the Baroque era is not as harmonically set as you might be led to think, because you've heard all this Bach and Vivaldi and Handel all your life. So it's it's good to get to these um these early, mostly Italian Baroque uh, composers. There are a few non-Italians in here too, but I think yeah. they all traveled to Italy and sort of performed there. Um. Okay, so on this recording, it's 11 um, single movement works, so 11 tracks. And um, if you're not um, sitting in your chair and kind of uh, staring at your um, CD player to know which track you're on, it'll be hard to keep track because the individual sections of the music just keep spontaneously changing. And then one piece will stop and the other will start without much of a pause. So you might not even notice that you're on a new, a new piece. It's um, it's, the whole thing is like this big kaleidoscopic journey. This whole this whole album, yeah. yeah. And okay, so let me go through these a little bit. Um, the first work is by a composer named Carlo Farina, and uh, it's these names aren't really going to mean anything to you, but um, Sonata Seconda Detta La Desperata, which is a nine-minute work. Um, and uh, this one uses um, the full um, ensemble, chitarone, which is a giant guitar, baroque harp, organ, violin. And these are all the continuo or the uh, underpinnings of the harmony. Those used to be played um, by musicians. It's sort of like we, we were talking about Indian raga. Um, in Indian raga, you'll have a... Um, Oh man, I'm, it's all I'm all spacing out on it. The instrument, there's an instrument pl constantly playing in the background, setting the harmonic uh, sort of range that the uh, soloist is supposed to be playing in, and it's just a repeating pattern. This sort of used to happen in Baroque music too. That's what the harpsichord and the um, the other continuo instruments did, while the soloist would solo on top of that. So there is kind of a relationship for that. Um, Plus we have these. Yeah, period instrument sounds which are kind of cool here too yeah and the violin soloist is playing in a complete non-vibrato style so it's just like this kind of whiny sort of um, yeah. so nasal sort of sound that comes from the violin which you you really will adjust to it i mean it might be off putting at first but i've heard so much music like this now that i really enjoy it actually i remember in the 80s when violinists first started playing like this um it was really new and exciting because you'd always hear these you know virtuosic violinists playing with lots of vibrato and it was kind of it was like singing and here it's it's more um there's something about it it's just sound Okay, this piece gets starts mournfully, then it gets jumpy, and it's suddenly introduced second section. The third section is jumpier still, and there are just sudden changes all the way through, and that's true of every work on this album. Um, it's really music that's ideal for um, our current um, um, constantly looking at your iPhone uh, <laughs> era, because it's <laughs> uh, if you have a short attention span, no problem, you'll easily <laughs> relate to this, because something is always changing to grab your attention. Um, listen to this piece. If you're listening to track one at around uh, three minutes and 30 seconds, the suddenly the texture suddenly gets lighter and more transparent. 
Um, so you can kind of hear through to the back of the space as opposed to it being like this solid wall of sound that uh, Phil Spector would uh, create in his <laughs> recordings many hundreds of years later. Um, things keep changing quickly. And uh, I think that's part of its appeal, especially to our era. It's really wonderful to have rediscovered this uh, music. Now, the piece is called Detta la Desperata, or The Desperate Woman. Okay? Um, the piece gets more chromatic as it goes on. It's kind of interesting. So, And then we get a sense of emotion by the end. And this kind of like emotion is probably desperate-sounding, people think. Uh, this um, work ends suddenly on a quick cadence. Then we get a piece by uh, an Italian composer, Giovanni de Mac, and I've heard a lot of his harpsichord music because I was really interested in the early Baroque and also the early Italian Baroque masters, and he was one of them. This is a Takata, and it's played by the Baroque harp. This is Maxine Eilander playing the Baroque harp on this. Uh, this kind of sounded to me like a distantly recorded uh, keyboard, yeah. but uh, yeah, it kind of had a keyboard quality, but it is plucked if you listen carefully. It sounds like... It- the harp has a blanket over it. It's in the closet or something a bit. Yeah, it's, it's got far a very away. distant quality to it. I like the sound of this instrument. I kind of wish it was a little kind of more present, yeah. I think. Yeah, because uh, it's a toccata. And we think of a toccata as being about touch, so you're showing off some virtuosic technique. But in this case, this piece is mostly about the tone, so the, you know, the way you touch the strings and get the tone out. It's It's a pretty slow tempo all the way through, which is only... Less than two minutes. It's very short. Then we get to another composer I love, Marco Uccellini. Um, I heard a great recording. Oh, man. I should have just made notes of all this stuff. I There was a great recording of his music when I first re- discovered it. It was on the Harmonia Mundi label, released in the 90s. And I still have it. It's really great. Um, uh, and the listener's going to say, what is it? But um, it was Nicholas McGagan. Just, look for, just type in uh, Marco Uccellini. And uh, Nicholas McGagan and Harmonia Mundi Records. Um, it's a really fantastic recording, and uh, of of Uccellini's music. I really just love it. I still listen to it today. In fact, okay, this piece, uh, La Lucimina Contenta, is for the full ensemble. Very expressive work. It's almost like a Baroque opera aria without words. It's very emotional. Uh, and the final adagio section has a lot of chromaticism to it too. Next, we get to Francesco Corbetta, and if you listen to a lot of Baroque music, as I do, you will know Corbetta is a uh, guitar composer, so he he composed mostly for the guitar. He's one of these um, Baroque-era composers that guitarists like to perform. There are, there are a handful of them. One of the interesting things about the guitar, in fact, is that classical guitar composers... Uh, aren't uh, the same composers that compose for the piano and everything else. They seem to have composed exclusively for the guitar, and they're all new names. It's it's pretty interesting. So Corbetta is one of them. If you like the guitar, you might want to remember that. And this is a partita sopra La Folia. Now, La Folia was a very um, popular chord progression um, that is was um, it has its roots in the 1500s, and composers would often set their own improvisations on top of this chord progression. So when you see something called La Folia it, from the Baroque era, it means that's using this specific chord progression that was really famous at the time. It's not famous for us. Uh, we're, we're very removed from that era. Okay, now this is for the Baroque guitar and Baroque harp. And uh, Stephen Stubbs, the artistic director, is playing the Baroque guitar here. And um, Maxine Eilander again on the Baroque harp. 
after this track, we have um, tracks five through eleven. We have the full ensemble on all of them. So there's no more um, works for like an intimate small ensemble on the on the album. Um, next, we have uh, Giovanni Antonio Pandolfi Meali, a piece called La Castella. It's a set of variations on an ostinato pattern. Ostinato pattern is a pattern that just keeps circling around and repeating, repeating. Like it's obstinate. It won't go away. Um, in this in this particular piece and, and a few others, the ensemble does well, even though it's a full ensemble. They change the instrumental configuration of each variation. Not that they're changing the score. I mean, it's probably the score is probably very vague. It probably gives you a continuo and the solo line. But we have a lot of continuo instruments here. And they keep changing the, the timbre, the, the overall color so that each variation you're just aware oh this is a new variation and they're all very short so again ideal music for short attention spans not that that's a bad thing this felt very kaleidoscopic to me next giovanni battista fontana i love these names don't you fontana i wish my name was giovanni well giovanni battista is john the baptist everybody used to have that name back then so if your name was giovanni you were going to be giovanni battista fontana very elaborate names. Okay. Sonata Seconda. Uh, again, contrast between meter in different sections. Like one section will end, another one. The meter will change from like say four to three. It, I, it's really lifts me up. I feel really good listening to this sort of thing. Okay. Many of the sections work in with a cadential written out formula. Next, we get our first non-Italian composer on this album. And it's a good friend of ours. Heinrich Ignaz Franz von Bieber, not to be confused with Justin Bieber, as we mentioned, uh, they are no relation. <laughs> this, this guy spells his name B-I-B-E-R. Um, this is his first uh, Sonata Prima, and I actually knew this work before I heard this because of a, another. Yeah, we've heard this before. Yeah, we've heard this before, and not only that, but I've heard this back in the 1990s also on a fantastic recording of all of the Bieber sonatas played by uh, Andrew Manns on the Baroque violin, and he had a really unique sound back then. Mm. He now he now conducts. I don't think he plays much violin anymore, at least not on recordings. And Richard Egar on the um, harpsichord. Uh, seek that one out, too. That's on Harmonia Mundi. It's just a fantastic uh, recording. And it introduced uh, Bieber's music back to the, um, the public. He was one of those forgotten composers that uh, scholarship has... Um, brought back to life um now i know the man's recording so well that this one didn't really um attract me as much because of that earlier wonderful performance but it's still excellent if this is the first time you're ever hearing this work you'll really love it it's the longest piece on the album at uh 12 minutes over 12 minutes actually under 13 minutes and it starts with Bieber's, this is something he does in all of his works. Uh, he has this unique improvised sounding solo violin line that begins the piece. And it slowly builds into something of substance. And there's some really quick downward scales. That's another characteristic of his, which often feature in his works. And um, we were talking about Indian Raga earlier uh, in the, in the uh, podcast. The technique reminds me of the beginning of uh, an Indian Raga, the Alap section, where the... Um, the uh, soloist is um, playing the um, the allotted um, tones that he's going to use in the uh, in the work. He's kind of like sort of. It almost sounds like he's bringing in the whole harmonic uh, tools he's going to use into being from nothing as the um, 
it, it's I don't know. It's pretty interesting. There's no rhythm then, and then the tabla come in, and then you're in, you're onto a new section. Okay, it sounds like yeah, it sounds like, and this also sounds like it's coming into being. It's pretty exciting. Also here, especially in the older Mans recording, I, I recommend everybody go listen to that on your um, streaming service. Uh, it's kind of teasing too, so I bet it was kind of exciting to hear at the time. It was certainly exciting when I first heard it, uh, even like 300 years later. Okay, um, the violinist uh, Tecla Cutting here here sounds at her most inspired, like she really loves this work. Okay, so I uh, I think she really kind of goes up a level on this particular track. Um, the work goes into a series of variations of amazing difficulty for the violin. Um, so if difficulty is your thing, this is a good work to uh, listen to. This might, Bieber might have had the most difficult violin writing of the Baroque era. It's, it's uh, he's certainly in the debate. Um, <laughs> there's some really tricky stuff in here. I especially like the quiet variation and its orchestration at around the nine minute mark. So listen to that, and then it explodes into something more fiery when it's done. Okay, the only composer that's uh, recommended, uh, that not recommended, but that's uh, represented more than once is Johann Heinrich Schmelzer. He gets three tracks on this album, and the first of them is track eight. It's a Chacona, which is a, a repeating bass pattern over which um, various, again, sort of kaleidoscopic, uh, you know, um, variations uh, occur um, and this is from his uh, Serenada in Mascara it starts with some really nice Baroque harp I like their uh, arrangement of this and then just the violin and harp and uh, the violin is gliding around the harp's accompaniment sort of like a bird I kind of thought of like a diving bird really beautiful uh, the theme is really beautiful and this work stands out to me among the others uh, the other um, instruments come in eventually so this isn't uh, just for the violin and harp Next, we have Ignazio Albertini, Sonata Prima for Violin and Continuo. And uh, the opening of this is, I, I suspect Albertini may have listened to or studied with Bieber because he uses that uh, sort of music coming into being technique where, you, you know, which I compare to the Indian Alap. Um, he kind of does something like that here. Uh, by the way, in, the, in any Indian listeners who might know quite a bit about um Raga. I'm not saying that it sounds like an alap. I mean, they're very different things. But uh, it just kind of put me in that mind is all I'm saying. I'm trying to just get a sort of frame of reference. All right. Now, I had mentioned um, when you mentioned rappers being shot all the time. Ignazio Albertini sort of belongs in their company because uh, he was stabbed to death in Vienna in 1685. Now, we don't really know why, but uh, that's how he died. Did not live to a long life. Or someone didn't um, like the organ part on this part, maybe. Well, they could have used the harpsichord if they had chosen. Could That's have, the thing. Yeah. The continuo is the continuo. I don't know. He was apparently a bit of a, you know, to use to use a New York uh, Yiddish word that I picked up, a shyster. Oh. <laughs> okay. So he shyster. Um, shyster, yeah. So you pick up those words growing up in New York. Uh, Okay, Albertini's composition here is different than the others. Uh, it has a harmonic direction to it. Now, the thing that distinguishes this work, and in fact all later Baroque works, if you think about Bach and Handel, they have a harmonic direction. They're going to end on a certain key. And 
you don't really get that sense. Oh, they do end on a certain key in all of the earlier works, but you don't really get the sense that the music is heading anywhere. It's sort of like changing sections, almost like a, a series of magic tricks. But in this case, um, this piece has a, a harmonic direction, and that would become standard from Corelli onwards. So Corelli may have gotten it from Albertini. We don't know. Um, what this this was impo- an important development because it would allow bigger structures to be used in music. If music had a direction, you could always depart from that direction and then kind of, you know, kind of turn the music back towards it and create all sorts of tension and things like this. This is really what, um, and and this is still um, happening, well, I wouldn't say happening today, but it's uh, happened up until um, the beginning of the second, well, the, the beginning of the First World War. Really, um, it was Schoenberg and Stravinsky and people like that who, uh, all but eliminated uh, this idea. It's it's come back a little bit. If people are still writing in that idiom, that uh, harmonic idiom, it'll um, the music will have a direction. Yeah, this one was good, and you get a real um, contrast of the major and minor tonalities emphasized in here right. more than the others. And there's a lot of development uh, compared to some of the earlier pieces, excluding the uh, Bieber, which uh, has. Uh, the most development, but uh, here the variations are noticeable. So the theme is, uh, you know, worked up in a lot of ways. And then the changing tonalities uh, is, uh, you know, it it gives you a sense of going to different places uh, in a structure more than the earlier pieces on the recording. Right. Now, the Bieber work, I should mention, it doesn't have development in the sense that we think of it, say, in Mozart and Beethoven's music. It's more of a, it kind of builds like into into something. So he's found a way to sort of um, build it up. So it's we're not using development as in the technical sense that, you know, someone like Mozart's music would have a development section in the sonata and things like that. But Albertini's music picks up momentum as it goes, and that's a result of it moving towards its harmonic aim. It's telos, you might say. That's um, a uh, an Aristotelian term. He claimed that everything had an uh, like a, it was aiming towards a certain end. The word, the Greek word, was telos, and um, it's a good word to know when listening to classical music from around the uh, late Baroque era up until um, Schoenberg and Stravinsky. <laughs> um, music has an aim. Okay, it's going to end in a certain key, and it's heading towards that key. All right, next we have two works. We close the album with two works by Johann Heinrich Schmelzer. Again, uh, his Sonata Seconda. This particular work has like a wheels within wheels quality. It's variations. It's a set of variations. It has 17 repetitions of a seven-measure ostinato. And that ostinato itself is based on a variety of different rhythmic values. Uh, So don't don't bother trying to work this out. It'll just give you a headache. But just sit back and enjoy. It's really good. It's just that the technical um, sort of putting together of this work is is pretty impressive. Um, the variation shift between duple meter and a jig, which is a popular dance rhythm, uh, pretty interesting. The a duple meter is two, so it sounds kind of square. And the jig has a dancey sort of. It's. I guess it's three, but I'm not really sure. No, it's still it's it's still four, I think, but it's sort of a little less, um, you know, kind of strict. All right, and the last work, Sonata Quarta uh, from Sonate 
unarum fidium. Um, there's a textual change by the ensemble from the violin to the harp here. Uh, the violin comes in and gradually builds its rocking melody. Very beautiful piece. Uh, the rhythm range and technical challenges gradually increase as the piece goes on. And that's it. This is record is pleasant, and it's an easy and attention-grabbing listen. And if your attention wanders, don't worry. It'll come back in less than a minute because the textures keep changing, and not just because of the composers, but also the performers. They make sure to kind of change the whole um, timbral kind of um, combinations of each um, section of the music just to keep pulling you back. It's more of a multiple mood setter, you can say, this album. Um Maybe it sets a range of moods, um, and overall, that mood is calm. There's not much modulation here. Um, I would say this music could be the uh, rock music of its time. I often think of early Baroque music as being similar to rock music, and that it has a lot of energy and a lot of um, sort of um, shorter <laughs> shorter sections. Yeah, this one's easy to listen to. The instrument timbres are interesting. You've got yeah. the you know the period violin and that uh, kind of veiled harp sound. Uh, the organ pokes its head in kind of unexpected places, just sort of right. get this organ tone coming in. Oh, and yeah, know, it's just it's, a new it's, tone. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. always grabbing your ears. Um, recording, I like that about it. The sort of freeform uh, structure of the compositions in a lot of the pieces is interesting. Uh, because it'll change uh, in a place where you're not used to, because you know those conventions hadn't been established yet. Um, but yet the composers are uh, developing their ideas with you know themes and variations and new ideas, you know, along a different sort of more free uh, trajectory, depending on the piece. So they all sound uh, unique to each other and uh, you know kind of free and. Uh, in that sense, they all sound fresh, even though they're, you know, you know, rather ancient uh, in terms of what we listen to. Um, but you get a fresh kind of uh, melodic and uh, rhythmic explosion of sounds coming out of them and, and uh, the structure not being uh, tied to a certain uh, kind of, you know, format that you're used to. It, it keeps you kind of... Uh, Oh, listen to this, listen to that right. uh, kind of thing. So, yeah, um, I found it, even if you put it on in the background uh, to listen to, you'll probably be drawn in as to yeah, something exactly. new that, that's come up. Uh, so, yeah, uh, good listen. And uh, the, the tonal, the timbre blends are uh, a little bit unique and uh, very attractive. I want to mention also about the music of that period. Um, it's it, one of the gifts that music scholarship has given us was um, the um, resuscitation of all this music. We've really until my college days in the 80s, a little bit before that maybe, um, when research into this, this old music and period instruments and how those instruments would have been played started – there was a, a repertoire, so and certain composers made the repertoire. You know who they are: Bach, Vivaldi, uh, you know Mozart, Handel, Haydn. You know you, all, all the big names. There are a lot of them from the Romantic era, and everybody else was forgotten. And the reason for that was because um, people like Handel, but they they had Handel, Bach. They had developed the music beyond what had gone before and their music was able to express a lot more because of the bigger structures they were able to create because of these new sort of uh, discoveries of what you could do with harmony. 
But the thing is, this that doesn't mean that the music that came before them isn't interesting. I mean, this is this disc is a good um, sort of argument for that. It's really interesting. The problem is, is it's just like a, a short-lived period, and for that reason, we should value it even more. It wasn't going to last because th- there was only so much you could do with um, just varying or just constantly changing sections and things like that. Nevertheless, it's still really exciting. Um, and, uh, it's, it just feels like, um, you, you've just found this kind of interesting, uh, you know, imagine yourself in college and you sort of join this, um, this club and it's really interesting, but it's just going to break up after college, but you still had a good time while you were there. It's sort of uh, like that, I feel like. And it's, I, I found it, yeah. I find it really rewarding in that way. It's kind of exciting and, uh, something of its time. Burst of okay. creativity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Until, um. Things got more complicated. Sort of like you, you can think of it as the early, um, the early computer days when you had to sit in front of this um, cathode ray tube screen that was um, <laughs> with green print on green it. Green print, know? yeah. Mm. You know, we wouldn't want to do that now, but uh, nevertheless, it's a mem- It's a nice. It's an. In- I don't know that it's a nice memory, but it's an interesting memory for a lot of us who were around when that was happening. Okay. Anyway, um, next. Oh man, Beethoven piano concertos one to five, the complete piano concertos of Beethoven. This time played by Christian Zimmermann, a Polish pianist, and the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Simon Rattle, Sir Simon Rattle, I should say. And this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label. Oh boy, we've heard a lot of Beethoven piano concertos in the last two years, haven't we? What else oh, have we yeah. heard? Yeah. Uh, who did we hear? Wow. Uh, Bob Jose. Bob Jose. We liked that one. That was really good. I liked um, it anyway. I thought it was great. And of course, Stephen Huff. Stephen Huff. One of my favorite pianists. Yeah. Possibly my favorite pianist. I keep going back and forth between him and Stephen Osborne. I like both of them a lot. Two Stephen. They're both on the yeah, Hyperion label. Really um, and those were all really great. I, I enjoyed those. They were kind of fresh sounding. Who else did we hear? Um, Sudbin, maybe? Uh, oh, did he play? Oh, I yeah, but that was did. years ago. That was a, that was yeah, a few wasn't years in the last back, two but, years. Yeah. yeah, those are on SACD. As are the yeah. uh, Bavouze, by the way. Well, anyway, we've heard these works a lot. So. Yeah, we've heard a lot of these. And um, coming to this, I wanted to hear this. Of course, I chose this because I had it kind of sitting there, and I said, "Well, we should give this a listen." It's by a, a pianist I like a lot, uh, Christian Zimmerman. I find him very hit or miss. He's a very fussy pianist and um, I tend not to do well with fussy pianists though I like him there are a lot of qualities he has that I like and the fussiness isn't one of them although sometimes it pays off um, here here I go uh, you know putting pianos into um, <laughs> two different categories there are the um, the uh, pianists who concentrate on the trees and they kind of think that if they concentrate on the trees the forest will form itself in the background and there are those which means they're going for local detail, which I think is what Zimmerman does. And then there are the pianists who focus on the form, the the forest, and then they kind of drop the details in, and often they'll get some good details from that. I tend to prefer the uh, the uh, forest pianists. Okay, uh, the the ones who kind of look outline the form. Uh, a good example of this would be Maurizio Pollini. He was very much a form. His, his dad was even an architect, so you can just kind of tell that he's really interested in the form of the pieces, you know, making sure that they all, that the, the shape 
really registers. Uh, that's not to say that the shape doesn't register when Zimmerman plays. It does. And um, a lot of that is uh, what's well, it's his doing, cause, but Simon Rattle is also conducting and doing that. Now, this so this is kind of a dream team, this recording. It's uh, two of Deutsche Grammophon's biggest stars. Although I'm not sure Rattle is signed to them. I think, he, I don't know where he is now, but uh, Zimmerman has been on their label since the beginning. And Zimmerman has recorded these uh, works before, back in the 80s when he was a younger man. He's now 64 years old. Um, and he recorded them, just to show you how long ago this was, um, with um, three of them, uh, Piano Concertos 3, 4, and 5, with Leonard Bernstein, who would wow. die the year they were um, recording them. So mm. I guess uh, he didn't... Re- conduct the first two because of that his um his his death in 1989 wow okay um the ever fussy zimmerman this time had his piano fitted with several interchangeable keyboards inspired by beethoven's own instruments um i don't know what that means um i suspect though just from listening that the action is lighter because the early pianos pianos had a lighter action to them. The the current Steinway, it, it's. I, I read about this once. It was really interesting. The Steinway had a heavier action, and um, the um, the Viennese style was the um, or, or the Erard piano had the heavier action, and then there was a piano in Vienna. I can't remember. Maybe it was the Erard, but it had a lighter action, and uh, that style inspired the music of, say, Mendelssohn and composers like Hummel and composers that we don't listen to anymore simply because those works, the virtuosity in those works was really too difficult to play on the heavier action. So we've lost this music just because the action of the piano changed. I mean, we still have it. And piano technique is just so amazing now that uh, modern pianists have uh, started playing uh, Hummel's music again and uh, a lot of Mendelssohn's piano music and others from that era. So we're starting to hear that sort of... um, really rapid figuration again. And we're hearing it here, too, on this recording. So I suspect Zimmerman has a lighter action because he takes some pretty quick tempos and has this really flashy scales. And um, Isn't he the, uh, would- the one who, <clears throat> when he... I guess that's why he doesn't perform in the U.S. anymore, among other oh, reasons. Oh, tell me the story. He, yeah, I heard about uh, this. His, uh, pian- he, he brings his own piano. <clears throat> when he yeah. <laughs> travels internationally, and I don't know, it, fussy, it got fussy. Uh, destroyed at customs in New York. I don't know how you destroy a piano. I don't know if they <laughs> dropped it off the lift or something like that. But <laughs> it, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it, he couldn't find a whole one, you know, satisfactory piano in uh, in North all of Amer- New York, in, in all of New York, or anywhere else. <laughs> I know. Uh, for yeah, him. The, pretty uh, much the center of classical music in the U.S. But uh, you know, yeah, yeah, I guess and, that's pretty fussy. Um, yeah. Interesting story, though. Um, yeah, that is fussy. Uh, another fussy pianist, and I, this is a pianist who's playing. She's really great, but I don't really like her. Is uh, Mitsuko Uchida, Japanese pianist? Very, it's it's very fussy playing. It kind of makes me impatient <laughs> when I hear it. <laughs> but it's highly accomplished. I can't. I'm not. I don't mean to insult her or anything. It's just not to my taste. That's the only thing. I would certainly respect her artistry. It's just not for me. Anyway, that is, <laughs> just drop an insult about another pianist in there before we go into this. <laughs> well, we were watching right. that uh, video with uh, 
Pianist I hate. With, We're going to do a whole book. <laughs> That's going to be a future podcast. The tiny Pianist desk, I hate. The Tiny Desk Concert with Daniel, Daniel Trifonoff. Trifonoff, a pianist both of us really love. I, he, he's actually caressing yeah. the... Yeah, I've never seen anyone <laughs> like yeah. sort of caress the piano the way that uh, he does. I envy his yeah, girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> assuming his sexual. Well, I, I I should say I envy his lover. I don't know what his whole alignment is, so I'm not going to guess. You envy his you know. piano, and envy his piano too. Yeah. If it were sentient, it would love him back. Yeah. Anyway. Um, anyway, I guess in the in, in this recording, uh, I read the notes that the uh, orchestra was socially distanced. So, I guess they had yeah. to sit further apart than uh, in the standard configuration. And, I think uh, I'm not sure, but I think that registers in the recording too, because I feel like either th- it was because of that, or because Rattle had like a reduced um sort of uh, orchestra playing on this to kind of correspond more with um, Beethoven's era and with the sound that uh, Zimmerman is getting out of this altered piano. He doesn't... It's kind of an interesting sound He because um, he's changed the keyboard, so he's getting this quick action and this lighter tone out of it, like the bass notes, when he bangs down on the bass notes, they don't ring out. They just kind of like ping or something you know it's mm. kind of um it it's it kind of just sounds like okay that's the bass note it doesn't like kind of hit you in the chest cavity or anything like that it doesn't have that sort of resonance yeah. um so i was kind of wondering about that so he but it's a bigger sound than uh, pianos in beethoven's ear would have gotten i've heard we now call those instruments the forte piano which is the opposite of piano forte which is what the modern piano is is called in Italian, we just shorten it to piano in English. Um, and the forte piano has a more like kind of tinkly sound. It kind of, it's sort of, um, it's it's heavier than a harpsichord, but it doesn't. It's it's light. It's light sounding, and the orchestra would have to play. Um, it'll it'll make a sound, but it, it'll it can't, it can't be heard over full orchestra like if they were playing at full volume. Um, a modern piano can. Well, not over the orchestra, but it would. You would still hear it, let's say, if an orchestra was playing at full blast, yeah, assuming you were pounding on it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so we have that situation. It's it's kind of an interesting piano sound. Um. Um. Let me see. Um. Zimmerman says that each concerto has a different face, and in the uh, the booklet note, which is very playful, and I don't really like these kind of notes. I want to know about. I want them to be serious. I think that's my more. I mean, I'll I'll be the comedian here. Okay, just tell me what's going on so I can do my uh, academic work, and then I'll I'll make jokes about it later. Okay, but the two of them were just kind of rattle and uh, Zimmerman were kind of goofing around talking about these uh, these works. Um, Zimmerman makes the interesting comment, by the way, in the booklet that he is now seven years older than Beethoven ever was, and uh, he has uh, warm feelings about his younger colleague. Kind of interesting. You think you think about that, you know. I'm older than uh, Mozart ever got to be now, so. And he wrote much better music than I did, so go figure. <laughs> anyway, all right, let's start piano concerto number one. Now, the first two piano concerti were kind of written more in Beethoven's classical phase. They're kind of similar to Mozart and Haydn concertos, but we do have elements of Beethoven emerging 
in these. What, what I mean by that is they have more of a classical line to them. The, the form is easier to identify, um, and they'd fit in fairly comfortably with, say, Mozart and Haydn's music, except that they're louder. Um, one of the things that um, Zimmerman says is that these works are kind of, they're, they're playful and that we should remember that Beethoven had a sense of humor. And he did. We think of Beethoven as being very serious because of all the busts where he looks really serious and um, the Fifth Symphony, which is a very serious work. But uh, there are a lot of playful Beethoven um, works, um, some of the symphonies um, or some movements from the symphonies, and a lot of the piano sonatas have, have this kind of playful element to them. And this one does too. Now, he said that, but I'm not really hearing that register. I think his idea of playful... Zimmerman's is a lot different than mine. I've heard these played like lightly and sort of um, in an interesting way. I think Zimmerman is like way too serious because, he, like I said, he's a fussy guy, and I think his sense of humor doesn't really register the way, uh, say, like a more lighthearted pianist would. Um, I felt that in the first uh, piano sonata. Simon Rado's following period instrument scholarship at the beginning, which I approve of. I really like hearing this. Um, I do like it, though. I'll take Beethoven either way, either like the lighter sound or the big booming sound that uh, like someone like Carlos Kleiber got on his um, his best ever, I feel, recording of the Fifth Symphony. I still think that's the best ever recorded. It's really powerful um, from the 1970s. Okay, I think this orchestra is also playing at modern pitch. So he's got the, the short bowing and things like that, but we're hearing A equals 440, I think. I didn't read about this. I'm just kind of guessing. I could be wrong. Um, he'll go for the volume when he has to. Beethoven a lot is about volume in a lot of ways. Those sforzati off the um, – or forced, um, you know – um, notes or you know, like sudden volume like on the off beats and things like that is a big um, characteristic of Beethoven's music. Um, this work, this performance um, emphasizes that Beethoven is in his early classical period. Um, it's hard to know what to make of Zimmerman in this movement. Um, he's giving a very straightforward performance, I felt. There's a lot of plush romantic figuration with obvious pedal which we wouldn't expect from a period performance. Um, but he's got that lighter tone on his uh, on his piano, just, I guess, because of the keyboard. It's well-judged, beautifully executed, as always with this pianist. Um, he's got a kind of classical slash romantic hybrid approach to his playing in this work, and I feel like it would have been better done as a classical, in the more classical mode. Um you hear his more romantic personality in the cadenza, which is the piano's solo part without the orchestra. Um, the Largo second movement is sensitively played, and it sounds pretty straightforward to me. No real complaints. Um, and the rondo, the third movement, um, Zimmerman claims this movement has wit and something grotesque or cynical about it. Um, I've heard this piece played with springy joy before, and Rondo tends to indicate a kind of springy joy, um, but this duo doesn't go for that tone. Um, there's something slightly heavy about the opening phrase. It's not fleet-footed like Mozart. Uh, nice articulation and terracing of the dynamics between the voices and the piano. Really amazing. And there's, there's a kind of gruffness to the movement, and it's accentuated especially by the orchestra. It is an off-putting, and it's got a big booming ending. Uh, I'm not really sure that this, this kind of grotesqueness comes through in this movement. So he's talking, but he's not really kind of presenting these things. They're subtle. Uh, you know, and it's his idea of what grotesque is, I think, too. 
Piano Concerto Number no. Two, again another classical work. Zimmerman considers this concerto to be mean and goofy. Okay, goofy, I get the meanness. I don't know. I think he's kind of um, kind of putting that in there. And by the way, the conductor Simon Rattle agrees with this. Okay, we get a Mozartian opening in the first movement. Uh, Zimmerman sounds elegant. Uh, his piano sounds much like it did in the first concerto. Um, to my ear, this sounds very pretty. I don't, I don't hear any meanness or goofiness here. We'll get to that in the third movement. And again, I don't know that Zimmerman can do mean or goofy. He's too refined. Okay. Um, perhaps in the cadenza, some of the gruff meanness comes out with the chords being forced out, the sforzati. Okay, that could that could be what he means. This is sensitively played adagio, second movement. Um, Zimmerman isn't stepping out of what's gone before too much, um, but um, to me, Rattle's conducting draws my ear. Uh, there's, there's a cadenza in this movement too, which is unusual. Usually the second movement doesn't get much of a cadenza. It's kind of shy and spacious, and Zimmerman plays it very quietly, almost so you have to lean in toward the speakers to hear. I should also mention, I'm pretty sure the um, album doesn't list who wrote the cadenzas, but I think they're all Beethoven's cadenzas, because a lot of them I've heard before. And I'm pretty sure Beethoven wrote them all. He, I don't think we're hearing any original cadenzas here. The rondo section, this would be kind of where the mean and goofiness comes in. Uh, Rattle emphasizes the woodwind accompaniment in the string-driven sections. So he kind of, it's it's kind of odd. You're, you're sort of hearing this a little differently um, than you normally would. Usually the strings, you know, most conductors will just make the strings the uh, focus. But here Rattle gives you the woodwinds. This is a high-spiritedly goofy, a little bit, with all of its interrupted figuration and scales in the piano. There are a lot of, like, there's a lot of figuration that will suddenly stop or change. And uh, Zimmerman gets a feeling of fun coming out of his playing. There's a very deliberate slowing down of the theme at the five-minute mark. You can check that out. As though, like, the pianist is saying, do I have to do this again? You know, maybe the meanness or the impatience or something. Um... This work uh, skips along to the end from this point with delicate staccato chords just before the explosive final cadence. Explosive is a good word to describe how a lot of Beethoven symphonies end. Okay, now we're getting into some uh, more romantic territory. Um, Beethoven is kind of coming into his own. Piano Concerto Number no. 3 was written um, between the years 1800 and 1803. Um, the... Moonlight Piano Sonata was written in 1801, and uh, 1803 was when the Eroica, the third gigantic symphony, uh, started. So this work was finished when that work was premiered. And this particular interpretation of Piano Concerto Number no. 3 goes for extreme contrast within the parameters of the era, of course. Um, it's soft, loud, coarse, and elegant, brusque, and tender. And we get a lot of these changes. Um, the Allegro con Brio first movement has a big, bold opening scale run on the piano. Uh, Zimmerman goes for high contrast as the vol volume suddenly quiets to a very low level. All in all, this is a free and uplifting movement, and the performance is very, there's a very dramatic entrance in the cadenza as well by Zimmerman. Um, I've never heard this, this is Beethoven's cadenza, but I've never heard it played with this much contrast of volume before. Next, we have the Largo, begins very quietly and slower than most performances. There's lots of space. Um, Rattle here is very atmospheric in his gliding accompaniment and often haunting accompaniment. 
Um, this movement is 10 minutes long, but it doesn't drag. There's a good sense of the structural line. All right. The rondo, Allegro Presto. Zimmerman starts with the catchy rondo theme, which he plays very straightforwardly. I want to mention, too, that Zimmer, at this point I noticed that Zimmerman is getting an amazing articulation of every note that he's playing especially on very rapid runs on the uh, on piano scales it's you hear every note being pressed down it's pretty remarkable probably a feature of the keyboard that he's using uh, he gets a really bright sound and I'm wondering if he's using the same piano as in the first two movements probably not the orchestra is loud and rather belligerent and the piano keeps decorum so there's a contrast there as well um, almost like the the piano is the uh, he, he can kind of think of uh, one of these um, sort of a salons in the, of the period where the uh, the hostess, usually it was a woman who would run these things, is trying to calm everybody down. Maybe there's this big fight brewing. <laughs> okay, the orchestra really wants to make its presence felt in this movement. The piano sounds amiable throughout, and Zimmerman really pounds on the bass notes, which don't register with the depth and richness of a nine-foot grand. So there's something, this piano has been altered in some way. Okay, the two most famous piano concerti, number four and number five. Um, number four is really one of my favorites. Actually, number five is pretty great too, but I've heard it so many times. Anyway, piano concerto number four has um, is famous for its unaccompanied piano opening. Uh, this has this had never been done before. I don't. Well, no, actually, Mozart might have done it. I'm not sure, but it was very unusual. Um, the piano starts the concerto solo, and. Uh, Zimmerman plays this opening, this really famous opening, rather staccato, which is a little unusual. Uh, I would call the piano's approach this entire movement highly articulated. Every note is audible and isolatable, even in fast scales. Um, it sounds etched, and I think it kind of takes away from a little bit of the uh, the magic that other pianists have conjured in this movement, or in really in this whole concerto. Uh, Andate con molto, middle movement, both rhetorical orchestral intro followed by a very quiet piano entry. Again, contrast. Uh, the piano gets a ruminative quality, so thoughtfully kind of thinking about thinking about things, you know, um, after the opening section. And it's very slow. The movement is only five minutes long. Uh, rondo, vivace. Again, nice articulation of all the repeated notes. All attacks are audible. I don't really have much to say about this one, and it's one of my favorite ones. It didn't capture me. I mean, it's a very, it's a good performance. No, nothing to complain about. But I wasn't captivated, and um, I've heard some performances of this that have captivated me. That's why it's one of my favorite of the Beethoven Piano Concerti. All right, next we get to the final uh, Piano Concerto number five, the Emperor, the most famous, and all of you out there have probably heard either this concerto or bits of it. Um, it, it winds up in going into popular culture every once in a while. Um, in the Allegro, the orchestra is thin and the piano is slightly light and tinkly, as in the above performances. There's gorgeous, smooth articulation in the scales and arpeggios in the introduction by Zimmerman. And he takes a pretty quick tempo once the main section begins, after the big kind of piano figuration runs at the beginning um incidentally i want to say i really think um if you know um eddie van halen's um guitar solo eruption i think the whole structure of that comes from the beginning of this piano concerto there's kind of a similarity in the way the chords changed i i wonder about that hmm. give it a listen and let me know 
All right. So once we get to the uh, main section, there's a really quick tempo taken. Uh, Rattle pulls some unexpected colors and detail out of the orchestra writing when the orchestra plays without the piano. Uh, this movement seems to be all about articulation for these two. Uh, Zimmerman plays the magical second theme solo on the piano. It's beautifully detailed, but but again, he's not getting the magic. There's something there's something in the tone that really makes this magical theme take off. Um, it's sort of like that. It's introduced in the orchestra as like sort of like a march theme, and then the piano makes it into this kind of sparkling sort of romantic theme. And I don't think Zimmerman's um, it's not necessarily his playing, but his piano doesn't give it much sparkle, and I kind of didn't wasn't too happy with that. Um, he does the repeat of the gorgeous theme at a slow march tempo, which I thought was kind of odd too. Uh, this didn't captivate me much. The second movement is slow and pretty, and the piano playing is very touching. Um, the repeated figuration around the three, three and a half minute mark is played staccato, rather like uh, the pianist is annoyed. I don't know that that's really appropriate here. Um, then he gets into the waltzing theme and feels at home. I think, I don't think it's, I'm not saying that Zimmerman was annoyed playing this, but I think he's interpreting this as being a bit of Beethoven's gruffness or something like that. I don't really agree with that, but there you go. All right, now, one of the more magical um, moments in music history is the uh, the very slow introduction to the um, third movement that starts in the second movement and then springs into the joyous Rondo theme. Uh, this particular, I've heard this played a lot of times, and even a lot of really great pianists just don't do this in a convincing way. It's got to kind of feel like this moment, this kind of like this spring that's all wound up, and then once the rondo theme starts in the third movement, it just kind of explodes out. And some pianists don't really time it right. Zimmerman does. This works very well. Uh, the launching into this movement is beautifully judged and well taken. And the uh, slight pedal to separate the various lines of figuration is characteristic of the attention to detail uh, paid by Zimmerman in general, and in this recording too. Uh, Rattle emphasizes Beethoven's quirky rhythms in the orchestra throughout this movement and taking special care to make sure we hear all the sforzati, the really forced chords. Uh, Rattle has a knack for making this very familiar score seem unfamiliar in his reinterpretations of familiar phrases. And I found myself saying, wait, is that in there? Okay. So, overall, though this this high, this much recorded um, and um, concerto didn't really uh, do it for me. I really preferred Bavuze and um, Huff in this um, particular work. I get the okay. So, um, I think what um, surprised me most about all five of these works is these performances, which is that they were not as big boned as I expected. Uh, Rattle seems to have pruned the London Symphony Orchestra to a size more in line with, or perhaps only slightly larger, because it's large enough to get an impact, than what would have been heard when the work was premiered. While Zimmerman has a lighter tone that I'm used to from him, due to the keyboards he chose. It's interesting, but this isn't a first choice. It's enjoyable enough. And, you know, so I, I can kind of give it a recommendation, but I feel like there's better out there. Um, it's unique sometimes, but not unique in ways that make me forget other performances by other pianists. So I'll give this a kind of, you know, lukewarm thumbs up. It's it's good. It's just, there's a lot of magic missing for me. So I don't really recommend this as a first choice. Yeah, having heard 
lots of other recordings of them in uh, recent times. I wasn't really up for listening to all of these uh, mm. intently. To be, uh, to be honest, me neither. <laughs> uh, so what I did is I, I put them on uh, and I listened to them kind of holistically, uh, just listening for what would draw me in and uh, maybe make me take notice to something different in the interpretation. Um, so what I noticed about Zimmerman's uh, individual playing, uh, he has amazing rhythmic precision, uh, the way his fingers work uh, in exactness is pretty impressive, and that gives him, uh, or is combined with uh, clear articulation. Uh, yeah, so, it's, it's uh, pretty amazing, actually. The lines uh, in the solo, particularly the solo piano passages, uh, are very clear and distinct, uh, and uh, that's due to his technique. But I felt like his approach, especially uh, in the first you know, two, uh, which have a different character, as you said, they're more classical, uh, I, I feel his overall sort of, uh, as you're saying, uh, the the forest approach is very right. measured. And okay. so I feel like he's really, he's because he's, he's focusing on the more, or you get the impression when you listen to it of you're drawn into this, this sort of, uh, as you say, fussy individual line articulation mm -hmm. type of thing that uh, it's kind of measured. So rather than, uh, experience. Even though I was listening to them holistically, uh, when I would take notice, I would be focusing on a small part, which I didn't necessarily felt tied into the arc of the whole uh, composition or the, even the movement. Uh, so I felt sort of uh, I was listening to things a bit uh, piecemeal, uh, even though that wasn't my attention. Uh, and at least through the first two. Uh, uh, concertos. That's how I felt. Uh, but I, I started to enjoy a little bit more from uh, three to five, uh, just because I f felt maybe Zimmerman was uh, pulled in a little bit from the different character, and his touch seemed to uh, warm up and become a little bit more uh, lyrical. Hmm. And uh, through the nature of those works, uh, so that's I funny. Found them yeah, it's funny because I I have the I had the opposite feeling. I liked it more at the beginning. And I kind oh, really? of didn't like it as much at the end. But I think that's probably because I'm more familiar with the later All piano right. concerto. Because like everybody and and their brother has recorded has them, those, so yeah. I just heard them so many times. So I yeah. think I expected something uh, something more from them. So yeah, oh, I mean overall they're fine performances uh, from any kind of technical standpoint. But uh, if you're looking for the overall uh, impression of being wowed by something uh, new musically, I didn't really get that. Uh, yeah, I didn't get the, that either. Out of the yeah. whole experience of them. So, uh, but I haven't listened to his uh, earlier, thirty years ago recording. Uh, maybe it would be yeah. interesting to compare those two. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, as a technical performance, yeah, certainly very <laughs> impressive. And, With Bernstein uh, conducting, I bet the orchestral sound is really big. Yeah, it must be much bigger. Yeah, yeah. maybe the, the the piano sound might be uh, quite different from what's going on here too. Well, it would be a full piano, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of detail here. Uh, piano players might uh, enjoy the the detail that you can hear from this somewhat 
lighter kind of uh, keyboard uh, sound that's in here. So right, pianists should probably hear this. It's um, just just to kind of hear how it's um, how, hear the approach. I think we and especially in a lot of the. Um, I've heard these a lot before, and then you know sometimes uh, there's so much going on with the two hands that you sort of get a wash of sounds, but hmm. you can really pick out the his articulation even in the left hand uh, yeah. lines and uh, sort of counter lines, and that's very clear. So I noticed things that I hadn't noticed before on the like I'm saying on sort of the individual part and movement level, but. I didn't feel any greater statement from tying in the movements and the arc of the full composition uh, right. from, you know, this uh, sort of recording. So, yeah, I, that's how I felt. Good, but not, you know, emotionally uh, completely moving or earth shattering in any way. Yeah. Right. For those, for those of you listeners at home who are keeping score of my ever evolving uh, vocabulary to talk about music remember we have wave sopranos and particle sopranos and now we have forest pianists and tree pianists mm. so um <laughs> you might want to note those down yeah Do we for have when leaf, i use them again leaf pianists <laughs> too i wonder i don't know well if we ever get a leaf uh, i think i'll give up if that happens yeah, we, won't, we won't even put so it on the show i mentioned yeah. uh, uchida as the ultimate like tree pianist but um i don't think i don't think she's quite as far gone as being a leaf pianist you know <laughs> what would happen in autumn to them they were just kind of wouldn't play would wait the till the winter. spring to record yeah, I again i guess <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah well we are drinking uh bourbon here i would like to uh, remind listeners if you're not finding the jokes funny that's why anyway <laughs> you're just not drinking enough so well, try again the, that could that could be the try again later in the evening with the yeah. appropriate beverage yeah, not, it's not us. It's you. You're not That's drinking right. enough, listener. Okay, so okay. you're gonna need you're gonna need some kind of um, altered experience to uh, appreciate the next recording. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. Okay, now this is Maybe a some uh, absinthe a, would be good for this one. I don't know. Absinthe. Yeah. Oh man, that would be good. Now, see, now you said that, I'm going to start looking for it in the. Uh, in the I have a whole bottle like, unopened that you? you're welcome to because I had a very bad experience with that drink, and I've never really warmed up to it again. But oh, really? No, I like it. I still for think of it day. as the um, as the drink that Hemingway and all the um, early 20th century artists in France drank. I think this is a, actually a f a full strength uh, two joan bottle from the Czech Republic that I have. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, well, we can oh, if I'm discuss welcome that to it, another I'll, I'll be over tomorrow. Oh, I mean. Okay, right. come <laughs> over. Yeah. Do a special episode take, of uh, Absinthe. Let me take that off your hands. I mean, I wouldn't want to like leave, you know. No, no. Anyway. Well, okay. I'm going to put your name on it uh, since you no, gifted me some uh, CDs uh, recently yeah. too. So, uh, yeah. There you go. I'll free up the space for another bourbon bottle in the old, uh, the old booze box. So... <laughs> the booze box. <laughs> Some people have a liquor cabinet. I have a booze box. It's kind of fun. I've actually referred yeah. to certain people as booze boxes. So I don't oh, know. really? <laughs> but that's anybody that I know. A real booze box. <laughs> oh boy. Or me, maybe I don't know. One of the thrills of getting old. I just want to say, if you're young, getting old can be fun. Just uh, <laughs> as as your as your observations of the world around you develop, just don't be bitter. Listen to music. That'll keep you. Unbitter. All right. So anyway, our third uh, classical record. Man, we're going really long today. 
noticed. All right, speed up, speed up. Recording. Okay, so yeah, but this one's going to take a while because this is uh, a contemporary work, and we really have to kind of go to town on this. The composer is Sebastian Fagerlund. He's a um, Finnish composer, um, and I think he was born in the 1970s. I should have written this down. All right, I can look here. Hold on, I got the uh, the Super Audio, the Beast Super Audio CD right in front of me. So if you have a Super Audio capabilities. You're all set. Yeah, this guy was born in 1972, so he's our generation. Uh, he's younger mm. than us, slightly younger. Yeah. But um, these are two works by him, Nomad, which is a um, concerto for cello and orchestra, and a 20-minute orchestral work called Water Atlas. Okay. The uh, soloist on the... Well, let me get to that. The soloist on the uh, cello concerto called Nomad is um, Nicholas Altstadt, who is a um, who's pretty well known. He's a younger Chelsea. I mean, he's kind of, he's been around for uh, a good 10, 20 years now. But um, so I guess he's probably in his thirties or forties by now. I'm not really sure. And uh, the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Hanu Lintu. Can I just before we go give a salute to the uh, Finnish uh, Radio Symphony Orchestra and really other bodies of uh, Finnish orchestras for really promoting their countries, the music of their country's composers. There's uh, the Ondine label, they the Beast, they 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 put out all these works by contemporary composers, and it's just fantastic. We all get to hear them all over the world, and it's really great music. I think Finland is one of the places in the world where the best um, um, contemporary classical music is coming from. Um, mm. Another one would be Estonia, where Arvo Pärt is from. There's also There are a lot of other great composers from that country, and really those old Soviet um, satellite nations as well, like Latvia. We talked about Pedras Vasks last week. Yeah. Was it last week or was it two weeks ago? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I think, yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway, a new name for me, Sebastian Fagerlund. He is interested in large-scale forms and in music that expresses fundamental questions and existential experiences. His music is always highly virtuosic. Uh, Can I just uh, interject here and say, yes, it is. (laughs) <laughs> all those this, things uh, you just said i guess uh, this, yeah. this, this tied my ears in knots listening to this um yeah. and in a good way i, I just i want to add um it wasn't work but it required concentration to listen to these two works okay well maybe some people would consider that to be work i thought it was very enjoyable uh let me just say right away i, I liked these two works a lot and i really recommend that listeners hear this it's a work of contemporary music it's tonal so it's not going to be any of this kind of like weird kind of um um disassembling a watch type music we have all the parts <laughs> all over the place um it's so it's and it's highly highly virtuosic um if you want to know what's capable what cellists are currently capable of uh this is this um cello concerto will uh give you an idea of that um i don't think anyone in the 19th century could possibly play this because i I guess technique (laughs) has moved on jeez anyway um i know i have a few cellist friends here i doubt they listen to this podcast but i if they do, I hope they'll give this a listen. Um, I liked it a lot. Okay. 
Now, I mentioned the fundamental questions and existential experiences. I thought of this first work, Nomad, as a uh, an existential experience, giving you know, because it's sort of the experience of the cello, the cello, the wanderer, the uh, person being in these changing landscapes and sort of reacting to them. That's that's the overall picture I got of this. So it's not really a narrative so much as it's a bunch of episodes and a sort of reaction to that. Um, so you might want to think of it that way. Um, the title refers to Searching and Movement, Nomad, with an E at the end, by the way, it's a, and doesn't designate that there's a program. Um, there are six movements played without a break, and there are two short interludes. One of them is in between the second and third movement, and the other one is between the uh, fourth and fifth movement. Um, I hear this is a journey, really. Well, it doesn't really have direction so much. It just keeps changing. It's just different sort of... It feels episodic, really, I think, to me. Um, it's the cellist wandering through various landscapes, moods, and events. Okay. Let's go through this. The first movement... Now, keep in mind, this is a 37-minute work with really no breaks. There is a, there is a slight pause at, at the end of the fourth movement, but... Um, you're really going to hear this straight through. Now, sort of like the um, Baroque works that we were listening to earlier, the textures change. They're longer here, and they're more complex and denser, but you can kind of, you can think of it as the te as the, the same way you thought about those Baroque works, except bigger. All right, so th this work starts in a slow-moving, but expressively powerful um sense of growth and exploration we get out of this there's a it starts in the low register like something coming out of the depths of the earth um Fagerland says that um this sound that you hear right away is the melodic harmonic dna underlying the whole work um i couldn't hear that but he says it is so i'll just throw that out there in case you have uh, better ears than me i think uh, I think I'll eventually get this if I hear this work enough. I've only heard it like three times so far. So um, I'm going to need to hear it more. There's a lot to think about here. Um, the opening is more of a, It's not really a motif. It's more of a gesture. Um, there's some gorgeous orchestration in this entire work. The first thing that grabbed me is that the timbres uh, carry a lot of the work's meaning. Um, you know, they, the, the sounds you're hearing, not necessarily the lines or the notes, or the rhythms, but the sounds you're hearing really are kind of giving the the feeling of kind of what the cello is reacting to. Uh, the orchestra provides the environment that the DNA lives in, I guess you can say, uh, if the opening intervals provide the DNA. Uh, there are a lot of metallic, crystalline timbres as the cello plays, including a marimba and a piano. Um, the orchestra sounds huge. The cello's themes all consist of long, drawn-out tones in this first movement, and it often plays with deep feeling and warm tone. So if you like the cello, I think you'll be drawn into this right away. The second movement is titled Agitato. Well, it's not a title. It's a, an instruction. Agitated. Uh, there's a tense struggle between the cello and orchestra here. Um, there's something... There's a change of rhythm from the first movement to something more square. Maybe you could call it march-like. It doesn't really sound like a march. But there's something square about it. And the cellist has really put through his paces here. Um, there's a lot of quick bowing on single notes. This happens a lot in this work. 
And after some crescendos ending in dissonant crashes by the orchestra, the cello plays an impassioned theme. A quick passage is accompanied by woodblock percussion follows, another really beautiful and surprising sound. Um, it gets agitated and results in some brass punctuation, some fantastic brass playing and um, orchestration as well. Uh, the rhythm gets faster and more demented in the winds, and there's some great brass towards the end too. Uh, the cello starts playing in the march-like rhythm by the end, so it's been pulled into the environment. Then we get our first interlude, labeled Misterioso. This starts with timpani and low reeds, something like a low bassoon, a sound I love because of that vibrating reed. Um, um, then there's metallic percussion. Um, I didn't hear, I couldn't really make out the cello, to be honest. It might not even be there in this interlude. I'm not really sure. The third movement, Vivace Capriccioso. And um, this is sort of like a scherzo movement, so it's going to have this hyperactive sort of rhythm. And um, it's lighter. A scherzo is, it means joke in Italian, so it kind of means something light-hearted. Um, the cello ushers us into this section. So it, it does play at the end of the interlude. Uh, the rhythm is a bit reminiscent of the scherzo in Beethoven's Ninth. Like it has this kind of inexorable, like dun 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 dun. dun. I don't really know. I don't remember the uh, melody in this, but it has that sort of um, unstoppable sort of uh, quality to it. It sounds pretty deranged, actually, more <laughs> deranged than in Beethoven's uh, Ninth Symphony. And then it suddenly quietens. There's a general pause, and then we get to the magical fourth movement, the lento. Contemplativo. This is a fragile meditation from the cello, according to the booklet notes. I did like the their use of the word fragile, so I'm repeating it. And then a frail soundscape emerges like a slow cannon. Um, this is a 10-minute movement, the longest in the work. And there are very pretty sounds from the metal percussion and I think the harp. I, I, I'm not sure that that's what that was. Um, a lot of wonderful sounding harmonics from the cello, and that's another sound I love, and it's a very uh, sort of 20th yeah. century and contemporary sound as well. This movement this is, is really uh, otherworldly. This this is the you know, unique soundscape of the whole piece here for me. Right. Yeah, and in fact, it's, it is the central movement, the one that's going to grab ears. Um, it's The booklet describes it as a lyrical movement. I don't know about lyrical because it doesn't really sound song-like to me, but it does sound very tonal. And they say it forms an island of fairy tale beauty, but gradually grows fuller. Yeah, I can yeah, see that. So it's, it's it's sort of like hazy, sort of like a hazy me, vision of some place. This one, yeah, it it's a to me, it's like a um, a mist that has like drops of sound as a rain that falls into it. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. the tonality, it's, it's sort of like this pentatonic kind of uh, oriental scale. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it creates a, a space of uh, serenity. Uh, and then it builds out from that. But the initial buildup... Uh, to those uh, tones and the way it's spaced out is uh, it, it really, uh, you know, as you say, uh, this is an episodic work and this is a completely new scene. It's as if in, right. Star, in Star Wars, you're on, you know, you've, you've gone to that new moon of another solar system and it's got a lot of trees the craft. or whatever. Yeah. And, and so yeah. you're now in a new 
completely new environment and that environment is presented to you in full here before anything think, else think develops, of it as the so. the the elves kind of kingdom in lord yeah. of the rings when they the ring bearers all go yeah you know they go to they get exactly their time yeah. of rest you're, you're in you the know? elven kingdom in the forest and yeah. uh, you're going to get a full picture of all of that with different tones uh and so right. it's really a lovely and then interesting uh, development. It is interesting. I think yeah. so too. Um, incidentally, the composer says that um, this movement reaches the core of the work's musical DNA. Mm. Even without knowing that, I think you would guess that this there's something central about this movement. It does feel like yeah. important sort of in the whole structure. He also says that both Baroque and folk music form a background to the music, and the folk music theme seem to come all the way from the Far East. Good call on the pentatonic well, scales be, there. Yeah. So yeah. you... Um, yeah. What I found, uh, too, um, the, the cello is doing a lot of interesting things, and I like the way the woodwinds kind of swirl around the cello lines. It's yeah, sort of, you get, get like this well. spiraling kind of thing. Uh, so the woodwinds are important here. And then there's some really cool that, bass that clarinet at the end. That happens at about the, the midway to, point of the movement, so right, around after yeah. minute five for yeah. listeners. Yeah. And then um, then you get some kind of brasher things with the trumpets and orchestral hits. And then right. at the very end, the bass clarinet lines are really cool, too, uh, there, too. So I, I re- this is my favorite movement of the piece, yeah. Uh, the cello, yeah, mine too. Uh, the cello solo features playing from the middle to the high range. You don't get too much in the low range here. Yeah, there's almost um, there's some kind of uh, well effects. There's more of that later that we'll mention, but yeah. uh, there's sort of a, almost like a crying or growling type of uh, uh, sort of uh, effect that he gets when he's in that upper register. It's very faint here. But it's yeah. quite striking, actually. He gets, yeah, sort of, there's sort of slight glissandi. There's a heavy vibrato. And I wrote, creepy haunted house harmonics. Mm-hmm. There's something haunting about the harmonics. They don't really sound like pretty as they usually do. Um, there's a very slow, quiet ending. Then we get to the second interlude, um, Misterioso again, Poco Tenuto. Uh, this. Very brief interlude consists of barely audible chords on the strings. So I guess we are departing this magical world of the fourth movement. The fifth movement is marked espressivo liberamente, which means freely and expressive. And this is this whole movement is a cello cadenza. Cadenza, again, meaning that the cello plays alone without any accompaniment. It starts with fragile sounds on the cello. So he's, I guess it's sort of a memory. He's reacting to uh, what he saw in the previous movement. Um, And there's a quiet string background, which is held over from the interlude. And then the cello plays alone. Uh, The notes use the word improvised, an improvised cello solo, but I'm pretty sure this is written out um, by Fagerlund. I think think it's just kind of like the cello, just kind of what he imagines the cellist would think here. I I don't think the cellist is improvising this. Because uh, the notes, the exact words are, the notes say that the cadenza continues with a passage improvised by the cello alone. He doesn't say the cellist, so mm. that makes me think he's written it out. All right, so not clear there. Lots of harmonics in the cello part, and I, that's one of my favorite things about string instruments is their harmonic sound, the sound they get when they play harmonics. This one, which you uh, get by yeah touching the string and bowing as yeah. opposed to pressing the string down. The effects in here, this made me think. Like if uh, Jimi Hendrix played the cello, 
this is what sure. he would do because uh, there's these cool harmonics and then there's these sort of almost voice-like effects, like right. using sort of like a, you know, uh, a kind of a squawk box or some kind of uh, interesting thing. But of course, this is all done acoustically. Uh, yeah. And so he's, he gets these high harmonics and then he dives into the lower registers right. for contrast and... Uh, Real throaty it's, sounds it's, down uh, there. Yeah, it's a, like... Yeah. It's an amazing, uh, you know, set of tones. It's not what you you normally think of when you think, "Oh, I'm I'm going to put on a cello concerto this Sunday afternoon or something." This is not that. Uh, it's a different side of what's possible uh, from the tonal palette. Uh, not, not possible from most players, I would imagine. This takes great technique to produce this, but it's uh, pretty arresting. Uh, when you hear yeah. it, it's sort of coming from outer space almost, like an interstellar right. kind of tone. You might want to pay attention at around the fourth minute of the uh, fifth movement, which is track seven. Um, there's something electric guitar-like about the uh, buzzing effect that he gets on the cello. It's pretty amazing. Mm. Uh, a sound we don't expect to come from the cello. It's pretty, And it's an acoustic instrument. There's nothing really um, unnatural about this. All right, we get to the sixth and final movement, the esaltato molto agitato. So it's exalted, but also agitated. I really don't know how, what to make of that instruction. But anyway, this actually starts... Um, this movement actually starts like before the uh, eighth track. It's, it starts in the closing seconds of the, uh, of the uh, seventh track and then kind of continues on to here. Yeah, if you're playing this on a streaming thing or something, yeah. uh, make sure you get the, your uh, gapless playback uh, set right. up because um, not only this movement, as Mike said, but other ones too, they sort of uh, start before the new movement and track right, begins, yep. the setup or the lead-in. So you want to have as seamless of a transition as possible to not get any interrupted playback when you listen to it. Yeah, all right, this movement is passionate and determined. Uh, some sounds are produced uh, that sound like recordings being played backwards, but it's all live playing. It's a pretty uh, incredible effect. Uh, if you ever heard, if you ever played records backwards or spun them backwards, it's kind of just kind of only sound. to hear the satanic messages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> except that there's not be, there's no there's no tape on this. It's just all no. live playing. It's amazing. Uh, frenetic energy to the opening then it gets loud and agitated at the uh around the one minute and 40 second mark these aren't exact times by the way i'm just kind of sort of estimating uh there's a big climax then the music calms down towards the mysterious ending which features cello harmonics and a dripping metallic percussion sound which i really loved too uh the end is according to the composer shrouded in the calm of twilight uh in which the soloist sinks into the deepest register tuning the instrument down in order to go mm -hmm. below its norm, normal lowest note. So you can actually hear the cello being tuned down. You hear the string loosening as he's bowing yep. it. It's another cool effect. Um, an excellent work. It's high energy, highly virtuosic. You'll be amazed at the cello's ability here. It's also highly listenable, though a bit 
uh, demanding. I won't say challenging. It's demanding. It's because your attention is going to be strained. I think um, if you're not used to hearing music like this, uh, it's not something to kick back and relax to. No, that's for sure. It's sort of like a sound adventure. So if you want to go on the musical equivalent of um, uh, climbing a mountain, uh, this yeah. is kind of a good. Uh, it's it's sort of like a it's a little musical adventure you can go on in your chair. Yep. Um, it's rewarding, well worth hearing. And it would be great to hear in a live performance. I'd love to see a, a cellist do this in front of me. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's what my notes basically say. I, I mean, yeah. I, cello is my favorite stringed instrument, and I particularly like to listen to cello concertos and things. Uh, like on a weekend afternoon, it matches my mood. And this is not the normal cello that I <laughs> listen to. Um, right. But the array of sounds that... Uh, are written here and that Allstate, uh, Allstate, however you pronounce his name, is uh, produces. It's really mm -hmm. amazing what he do does with the instrument technically here. And then, you know, the orchestra is just creating this backdrop of uh, scenes for a strange journey. Uh, sometimes it's really beautiful, uh, but it's always unique and engaging. Uh, there's lots of space and... Uh, Rather than development, I would say transition. It's sort of, uh, you know, you're on a journey teleporting to these different uh, kind of uh, environments. And so you're drawn in and you can follow that even if you have no idea what's coming next or where you're going. Uh, you're going to get a lot of surprises. Uh, yeah. So it, it's not a difficult listen. It just needs some sort of... Uh, preparedness, an open mind, and then uh, sort of uh, a willingness to follow that along. And uh, it is quite interesting and entertaining to me, uh, this and one. It, yeah, and it will keep drawing you in, because as I mentioned, like those Baroque works we heard earlier in the uh, first one, the the whole musical texture keeps changing, mm -hmm. um, although over longer periods of time. So you will be drawn back into it if you're into the work, if your mind starts wandering. There is one other work on this album, and it's called Water Atlas. Uh, this was composed from uh, 2017 to 2018. Um, incidentally, yeah, the uh, Nomad is a recent work, too, that was composed uh, in 2018, so from the same period. All right, Water Atlas is a, a single-movement work for orchestra. No cello in this one. And it's the last work in a trilogy begun in 2014. The first two works were Stonework, and Drifts, and this one is the third one um, called Water Alice. I haven't heard either of the first two works. In fact, these are the first, this this and the Cello Concerto are the first two works by this composer I've ever heard. Uh, Water Atlas is uh, 20 minutes long, and it's the longest of the three works of which it is a trilogy, part of a trilogy. Uh, the booklet tells us all three works are linked by the same basic musical materials, though the composer stresses that each of them is independent and self-contained in itself. Well, I'll just have to take their word for it. I would like to hear those earlier works, though. Okay, all three works in the trilogy are about basic elements. This one would be the music of water, Water Atlas. Uh, the title refers to the eternal cycle of water combined with the human desire and need to analyze the environment. Um, I just got the water when I listened to this. I didn't really pick up on the human desire to analyze the environment. Anyway, uh, the composer emphasizes that the work is not program music. I would, I heard that. Uh, Waters approaches a more general, philosophical, and abstract element. 
And the composer is more interested here in cycles of water, seas and bodies of water, the evaporation of water, and then the return to Earth as rain, so that whole sort of circle. And you do get a sense of this. Um, the cycle is now under threat from pollution and climate change, and that's in the work too. So um, I, I really, this is another composer that uh, Greta Thunberg should check out. How dare you? In, I, I think she would, um, I, th- I, I think she might, she might even smile if she heard this in the, uh, the Vasque's works. <laughs> Imagine that. Okay. Okay. Now, because um, the composer, Fagerlund, is Finnish, he's thinking of the Baltic Sea and Nordic landscapes and seascapes in general. So there's nothing really rolling and pretty about these landscapes. They're very rugged and kind of rough. Um, you know, n- not the sort of thing we'll see here in Japan or in a place like England, which is, you know, green and pleasant land, as they say. Uh, these are more rugged uh, territory. Um, there are a lot of extremes in this piece, as there are in that landscape. Uh, Fagerlund has mentioned that a synthesis between virtuosity and slow-moving music is heard here. Yes, that is true. We heard that in the preceding piece, Nomad 2. Okay, and the work moves as arches, although I think of it more as cycles. Um he he calls it rising up and falling back, but I hear it as cycling uh-huh. around. I hear it as like ocean evaporation rain. Okay, I wrote swells. So okay, yeah, yeah. It does. I don't know I heard it more as more circular instead of like the arch. He's saying that's mm-hmm. more of an arch. I, I guess he would know, but that my I'm, I just want to give my kind of sense mm-hmm. of what I heard, just in case the listener kind of hold, latches onto that more. Okay, the work starts agitato capriccioso, which is kind of playful and agitated. Um, a texture with long lines emerges. And then, okay, so it starts um, agitato capriccioso, then a texture with long lines emerges, and then later the music freezes into this almost static kind of quality, which is labeled calmo misterioso in the score. Um, these two extremes are overlapped, subjected to metamorphosis, and layered. Uh, Fagerlund says the work is in a free rondo form in which a strong rhythmic theme returns constantly, but each time in a new way. And because he said that, I was listening for that, that theme and you don't really hear it, but it's just when the music becomes agitated, that would be the rondo that he's talking about, the the theme that keeps coming back. Um, the beginning is very frenzied and busied, which is the rondo theme. And as I said, um, everything gets elongated slow and then suddenly freezes, um, this frozen section consists of single plucked harp notes with very quiet string accompaniment. Uh, there's some l- agitation in the low reeds and the energy, so there's overlapping of the of the various energies in the work. Um, the slow frozen section lasts for quite a long time. Um, it's sustained until almost about the seven-minute mark. Like I said, this is a 20-minute work. And the music suddenly gains energy again. And this time it's got a brass ostinato pattern which evaporates into the wind and disappears. A long, elongated line um, reappears. Then the music is frozen again. Uh, The rhythmic theme with glissandi trumpets, again, a very striking effect, is back at uh, 9 minutes and 30 seconds. Then another long line calm section, uh, catching the glissandi and the brass and the strings and moving them upward. There's sort of a triumphant section with the timpani and brass around the 11-minute mark. And this all threatens to go back into the rhythmic section, but the frozen section reappears at around the 12-minute mark. This has icy sounds, 
in sustained strings and the high end of the piano. The frozen sections last the longest in this piece, taking a few minutes to the agitated rhythmic sections less than a minute. There is a lot of arch activity, with elements crescendoing and then decrescendoing to nothing. The rhythm section has briefly had a look in in the frozen section, and at 18 minutes you can hear both occurring at the same time. The rhythmic section at low volume so it doesn't overwhelm the frozen section. The piece ends with a juxtaposition of the two set sections, or possibly three, and goes out with an explosive crescendo to its last note. It's very cool. Um, this is because this work was 20 minutes long, and I had never heard, I hadn't heard the other previous shorter works. I really didn't know how to interpret this. It's dense. There's a lot of detail in it, and it's going to take quite a few listens to unpack. But that's my um, initial impression of hearing it after only a week of listening, only three times. Anyway, I like this a lot, and I like this entire album, and I want to highly recommend that listeners looking for something new, uh, give it a listen. It's going to be something that'll uh, change your brain a little bit uh, in a good way. And we all need a brain change, don't we? Yeah, the the cello work is far more attractive to me. Uh, <clears throat> the Water Atlas, it's um, it, as you say, it's very dense. Uh, to me, it was more about... Uh, kind of textures of sound, uh, sort mm-hmm. of, uh, I guess, uh, using this theme of water, the way that it flows and and uh, swells and swirls. Uh, mm-hmm. I got a feeling of a lot of swirling woodwinds and uh, sort of trumpet fanfares, almost as like a white cap wave kind of thing. Um, and the other thing I noticed more in this work is... Um, when the brass and woodwinds kind of swell, uh, you'll get a series of pitches, and then uh, some of the pitches kind of shift uh, while others remain the same. So the harmonies change uh, based on uh, you know tones that are continued, and then others that change because there's a lot of uh, elongated and sort of held out tones, and so that allows for you know, this kind of extended uh, harmonic changes uh, while there are sustained tones. So I found that kind of interesting. Um, And then, although there's quieter passages when they swell up, there are some places where there's kind of a frenzy of percussion and trumpet that uh, builds up. That's kind of interesting too. And there's some kind of cool trombone glissandos and things in there too that... Uh, you know, show these kind of downpours of water or something like that. So there's there's these like walls of sound uh, that yeah. you know, build up and swell like waves. And then, as you said, that final explosion. I, I thought it was interesting, uh, kind of dense. Uh, I only listened to it. Yeah. I listened to it intently, but only one time. So, uh, right. you know, this probably can get more out of it with repeated listens. Uh, this one is, uh, you know, it's it's a more compact work uh, all pressed together without the sort of uh, transitions for the cello work. Uh, and it, like you say, it would be interesting to hear the previous two pieces uh, and then see this one in yeah. context. But yeah, as a whole, the album is uh, very interesting contemporary work that's accessible and that it's uh, it gives you some tonal reference point. Uh, it's not uh, program music per se, but it does sort of give you a uh, an environment or some sort of uh, landscape in your mind. Uh, both of these works right. uh, 
either the changing sort of scenery environments of the cello work or this one uh, that's uh, based loosely on the kind of characteristics of water and maybe a North Atlantic Ocean kind of right. seascape uh, to you know, just give you a frame of reference to work these tones and effects that come in. But they're, they're not uh, unaccessible in the way that some modern music is. I think they're uh, very listenable and uh, draw you into what's going on. And uh, he's a very good composer for using the full palette of the orchestra. And uh, as a lot of these sure uh, uh, kind of uh, Scandinavian uh, composers are, the, the use of the tone colors, particularly the brass, uh, when it can really push out, you know, that sort of uh, heightened intensity is enjoyable. So uh, I thought it was really fresh and uh, well worth a listen. I got to say, if you if you're in the orchestra playing this, you know, you're not gonna gonna you know spend a spend a late night drinking and just wake up late and just go to the uh, go to the symphony hall and just uh, play this just off the page. <laughs> oh, the score gotta, must. I think you have to the, mentally prepare. For this. I can't imagine what the score looks like for this. Yeah, this yeah, was pretty incredible. Anyway, highly virtuosic and dense and really uh, energetic and uh, exciting. Um, I agree that the cello work was the more interesting work, but I think that's because of the presence of a soloist. He kind of adds something, you know, he's, his personality is in there. Whereas this one's just about, you know, mm. elements. Um, yeah. I should mention to listeners too, we, we mentioned program music a few times. What program music means is that there's an underlying narrative that the music is... Um, telling you so for example um tchaikovsky's romeo and juliet overture i've been listening to this lately that's why i mentioned it um we know the story of romeo and juliet and the um the work outlines the story you can kind of hear certain elements of the story in the music so the music means like a, a part of the story that's so when we say it's not program music it means there's no underlying story or series of events behind the music it's just kind of giving a a sense of something pictorial in this case mm-hmm. All right, so we're on to uh, Let's Swing. Now that we've kind of got our brains all perked up from this uh, very dense work. Yeah, so for Jazz This up. Week. Uh, Although not all the way. We're not going to lighten up all, with all three of these. but um, No, no. Um, yeah. But uh, I've, I've had so many recordings uh, since summer. I had to really categorize them and put them into like little subgroups. So, uh, last week we had... Uh, a sex kind of thing and uh, so this week is uh, big band we could, time we, we had that name last week uh, blow me away because it was all wind instruments Would, and yeah yeah but you picked all sax recordings and we missed our opportunity to um, say something sexual or you know well I've got like more that. sax stuff so we'll get uh, yeah we'll get to those okay. uh, little what, we, what have we had so far puns? we've had sax right. pack and we've had uh, oh sax pack would be good we, we had that already though sax yeah, did we uh, yeah we had a, a sax, oh, get a sax pack, pack with, pack the, with, with our, the renaissance workout oh, yeah. workout okay yeah so, um, how, did, how did that do did that get a lot of downloads that, that, that did pretty well yeah okay um, it's a funny title because uh, I like yeah, the idea booze? of a renaissance workout what would that be like I have no idea <laughs> that's why nobody that's else why did so that's why it was popular yeah mm. um the the uh the bourbon shots one was still our top episode that that gets downloaded every day actually it's really uh, yeah it's uh, 400 and some 
download. I, I, I think we're going to put booze in the title of this episode to see if that if that theory well, works. Yeah, booze if people go are going to download big, it because the word booze is in the title. Big band and booze goes together. Yeah. So um, they do go together. Let it go together. I, um, I remember French being made, hammered at certain jazz concerts I went to. That's never happened to me at a classical concert, no. you know. Although at yeah, the no. interval, I drank some wine once. I don't know. Yeah. French me and French yeah. me again are number two and three. Uh, they like so, that. Huh? Yeah. So we well, we're going to have more French French me titles. I have a few more of those. So yeah, those will keep coming. Booze and something pr- uh, provocative. I have a, always gets I have a lot of downloads. music for by women composers too that I'm trying mm. to kind of put into single programs. Some of them I just, which which I'm not really sure is always a good idea. I know people listen to those just because. They're by women composers, but I want to kind of put them into like the mainstream too with the other mm. things we're talking about. So there's that as well. Yeah. I don't really have any good titles for those though. No. We said girls, the, girls, the feminine girls. Feminine music was a great title. Feminine music was I had, good. I had girls, girls, Yeah, girls. that was good too, yeah. Should we go for that? I think there's um, an Elvis we Costello could. record We might make girls, somebody girls, upset girls. with that, but uh, that's okay because yeah. we don't care. We're looking for attention. We don't care if it upsets We don't care about anybody. that, yeah. Um, as long as it gets us attention. If it puts us on CNN... We're we're yeah, on easy street. Uh, bring it on, baby. Yeah, bring it on. Uh, so for big band bourbon and babes. Uh, speaking of uh, uh, ladies, uh, the first big band is uh, featuring a lady, uh, but not yeah. actually in the band. Uh, this is uh, the Japanese composer yeah. arranger Miho Hazama, uh, who is uh, generated a bit of fame in her career. Uh, she's New York-based and has been uh, nominated for Grammy Award. Uh, but uh, this album is not based in New York. This is uh, with the Danish radio big band. And uh, so she is uh, actually not performing on this album, although she is the conductor and uh, the composer and arranger of all of these tunes here. And, what would her uh, instrument be if she was playing? I'm not sure. Maybe piano. I think of her as a composer and conductor. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, this is on Edition uh, Records. It's called Imaginary Visions. And mm-hmm. uh, I won't go through all of the players in this rather uh, large uh, Danish radio big band, but I, I think what's key to uh, her style here is that noting, uh, for example, if you look at the uh, sex section, the sex players uh, double on uh, other instruments that are featured on the recording, including clarinet, flute, piccolo, Uh alto flute, uh, bass clarinet, uh, among uh, other things. So uh, it's not just your regular, uh, you know, alto, tenor, berry, sex section. You've got the full uh, spectrum of woodwind instruments here. And then in the brass, uh, the, well, the trumpets, trumpet and flugelhorn, that's kind of standard. But we also get uh, bass, trombone, and tuba in the brass section, which uh, Hazama uh, utilizes in her compositions. And uh, I think that's the appeal of her approach uh, to the music is uh, having a big palette of sounds uh, in the big band uh, to uh, you know, create something uh, that's totally rich in her uh, compositions. And uh, so, um, by the way, do do you know where she's from in Japan? I don't. I do not. I'm going to look that up. Hold on. You know, 
could check it out. So we have a lot of Japanese listeners, and I know they kind of like to know these things. So yeah, yeah. Um, Let's see. Oh, I spelled it wrong. Ah. All right. I'll let you know when I well, figure you can this check out. It out. But, uh, yeah. So uh, the first track on this album is called "I Said Cool." Uh, she, you she's said from, she's from Tokyo. Tokyo. Okay. Yawn. That's over there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, away from us in our western. Uh, That's where mountain, everybody's from. Mountain retreat. Yeah. <laughs> First okay. track, uh, I said, cool. You said, what? Uh, this one starts uh, with a sex That's the sectional. name of the track, by the way. <laughs> That's right, yeah. With tight intervals. Uh, this one has a kind of a rock beat and an incessant bass line that's uh, doubled in the piano. Uh, it features a funky flute solo that has some nice backing lines. Uh, it's a rolling piano figure interlude that uh, comes in, and then they get a new beat that emerges uh, there's a really hot-toned, rocky guitar solo in here, which is always kind of a nice contrast in a big band arrangement. Mm. Uh, good weaving sax uh, lines in the arrangement behind the solo, and a full ensemble uh, in the contrasting lines uh, before a kind of softer line with the flute takes it out. And it's just kind of a first taste of uh, what you get that I think makes her music good. Um yeah, this album, uh, the this Danish band, uh, the musicianship is good and the solos are good. But uh, what you notice is uh, she takes great care in the total arrangement and even the lines behind the solos are really interesting. So you actually almost want to listen to the solos again, just so you can hear the yeah. interesting things going on behind them and building up. Um, the track two is called Your Scenery Story. Um, this one begins with a kind of contemplative rhythmic piano figure uh, that leads into a kind of eight-beat feel tune. There's a nice woodwind and uh, flute part that transitions into a trumpet melody. And uh, actually, trumpet, I'm not sure, maybe this was actually flugelhorn here, has an extended solo. And then that flutters into a tenor sax solo uh, that goes to a kind of cascading uh, arrangement from the trumpets down into the saxes and a soft woodwind and flute part for contrast. There's a nice uh, sax section solely, and then it goes into a soaring full band uh, kind of section part that once again quiets into woodwinds and flute, and finally uh, back to the uh, opening piano figure. Nice arrangement, uh, full use of all the sections, weaving them in uh, well, uh, and uh, you can see her uh, skill at uh, arranging for the big band. Three, uh, Mingle Mangle Goodie Bag. <laughs> Interesting title. Uh, yeah. Just starts out with drums and bass. Uh, get a nice harmon muted trumpet solo that kicks in. Uh, this one is uh, a swing tune uh, in contrast to the previous ones. Uh, the saxes take the feature and get some nice brass swells and uh, stabs in the backing line. There's a lot of counter lines that also include some nice harmony muted trumpet. Uh, then the beat in this slows to a uh, real romp of a kind of a feel, uh, but then it shifts again and settles back into swing. Uh, there's a nice uh, piano solo with uh, brass swells behind it. The beat changes up again to a funk mm. beat, uh, that uh, emerges uh, for a tenor solo start. But during the solo, it shifts back to swing and again to funk. So the sort of underlying theme of this piece is the changing uh, type of beat here. Uh, things get swinging again uh, through all the sections that build up to some screaming trumpets. 
and go into the slow romp once more uh, after a pause with some nice trumpet and brass shakes. Uh, it shifts quickly to fast swing and then to funk again before the ending. So mingle, mangle indeed, uh, mingle, mangling the different kind of rhythmic feels here. Yeah, and in fact, this kind of brought me back to that, the first uh, album we talked about tonight, the Steelers Fantasticus album with these sudden changes right. in in every section. I kind of felt like that was happening here too. That seems to be a theme of this episode. Yeah. We sort of it, uh, got that. Yeah. It pulls you in and out just when you feel comfortable with something. Uh, you're going to be changed to a new meter or a new development of it. Um, right. Track four is called Home. Uh, this one has clarinet, bass clarinet, which is always nice to hear in a big band, uh, and muted brass uh, join in to uh, pretty pulsating backgrounds uh, with an alto sax melody. There's a new funky syncopated beat in the bass that gets laid down for a trombone solo. And then uh, always a nice combination uh, in big band, a harmon mute and flute, uh, which just goes together nicely. You can actually hear that on the uh, adult music theme. Uh, yeah. I utilized that technique when I put that together one afternoon. Very nice. Um, uh, things get mysterious as a solo piano interlude emerges, and then uh, we get some flugelhorn playing long lines joined by trombone. Uh, the funky beat returns for a flugel solo, and, tr and then trombone joins in again too. Uh, there's a swelling woodwind theme that flows into the alto sax theme, and then a kind of a rubato slowed down big brass uh, flourish that turns peaceful with flute flurries over a piano for a quiet ending. So this one's kind of textured and nice. Uh, home. Speaking of the speaking of the adult music theme, do you think we're still true to that theme? Do you think our tone on the show is consistent with the tone of the uh, adult music theme? I don't know. Should I, should I make a new one uh, for next season? I don't know. Well, I think we should keep the old one for a while until yeah, we get. I think it's all right. Can, I don't know. I thought it was kind of cool. It just popped into my mind, so I captured. No, it. No, I like the theme. Like, I'm just wondering yeah. if we are kind of being 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 true to that uh, tone mm. or something. I don't know. Are we Listeners, adult enough? Let us know. Yeah, you can let us know. <laughs> If you don't right. like it, um, you're welcome to commission a new, <laughs> new piece. <laughs> Send your checks to... Uh, to yeah. Russell Hubert. Yes. Um, yeah. Number if five. If you send it to me, it's just it's going to have uh, dominant seventh chords at, 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 at its most complicated. Yeah. I don't really... The ninths and elevenths, I don't really know enough about those. <laughs> uh, right. Well... Yeah, Got to get some more music right. theory going. Get inspired to something else, maybe. I don't maybe know. Maybe I should get Rick Beato's... Um, yeah, book. Yeah, <laughs> learn about. We them. could make an atonal theme. Like oh, turn. Man. We could get rid of the non-serious uh, listeners right yeah. from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, that would make our audience go down to about four or five people, and <laughs> we we would, and they're probably people we wouldn't want to meet. So yeah, <laughs> could have a twelve-tone twelve theme to start out yeah. or something. I don't know. Everybody, we could just keep that until uh, at least next February when season mm. two starts. Uh, where were we here? Oh, track five, uh, Mimi's March. Uh, this one is kind of, I don't know, it's not really a march. It's kind of a big band that starts with a full blast into a shuffle. Uh, the sax arrangement, sax arrangement is kind of cool. Uh, there's even some piccolo added in here. Uh, so you get that high woodwind uh, thing here. Uh, the arrangement builds up into a trombone solo where he gets really funky. Uh, there's a nice uh, wind uh, 
soli uh, here uh, without the rhythmic rhythm section so we get the, all the woodwinds working here and the bass is pulled down by the tuba uh, which is a nice switch uh, get that uh, low brass in here instead of the uh, uh, string wood bass uh, the drum kicks back in and there's a nice dirty dirty back uh, Barry sax solo uh, between the band lines he gets some real of those uh, low honks that can only be done on the Barry here uh, so that's satisfying and then the full band yeah. uh, swings back in and uh, gets into shuffling again uh, with some surprise punches at the end. Number six is called On That Side. Uh, it's a bluesy and bendy bass intro. It gets kind of a spy theme with a menacing sax line. Uh, and the band builds up into a hard swing with some uh, big brass hits. Uh those kind of things give way to a trumpet solo with a brass section in the middle and onto a sax uh, sectional uh, piece in the middle that uh, has a kind of counter uh, muted line in the brass instruments. Then there's a bigger brass section and a return to the bass figure in the middle and it goes into a new uh, doubled up beat uh, kind of uh, energetic tenor sax solo and then a nice full arrangement of the band to the end and some cool screaming trumpets uh, so a little kind of uh, you know you always got to have uh, kind of that peter gunn kind of uh, spy thing in a big band or johnny quest theme uh, to be cool and uh, the final track on here is called green uh, maybe this is for Greta Thunberg. I don't know. Uh, oh, uh, Lush arranging here with woody bass lines we, underneath. We, uh, we better stop mentioning her. Or we might have to have her on as a guest host or something. Yeah. Uh, how dare we? That would be horrible. Uh, uh, well, yeah. maybe it will. We don't know. We don't know yeah. what she's like. Oh, if she's a listener, come on. All right. uh, maybe she plays uh, soprano Does she sax. play an instrument? I don't, I don't know. know. Anyway, here is a soprano sax uh, tone that makes its voice heard. Uh, before this sort of develops into a kind of full corral of brass that fills the sound. This one's all about lush kind of uh, corral arrangement on this uh, track. Uh, things get quiet uh, with a slow, sparse beat for a breathy sax solo. Then there's some more soaring brass with moving lines uh, that carries us into uh, some sax sounds to the end so this one yeah, it's really great brass arranging and uh contrasts here uh so uh from this piece you gotta you know uh this big band is really really good uh technically um what we get out of this album i think is a, a taste of hazama's uh, arrangement skills that shows that she's able to use all the colors of the big band and since they're using uh, all the different woodwind instruments from bass clarinet to piccolo and we even get some tuba in the brass uh, here so we've got a big palette of sounds uh, the interweaving lines are well composed even behind the solos the solos are good the backing parts are well arranged too and give some arcs to the compositions with a lot of rhythmic changes that uh, yeah make them kind of uh, interesting as well as fun to listen to so i think she's got a lot of talent as an arranger um i'm not sure how this fits if this is her first uh outing with this group uh this group this danish radio big brand you know these kind of 
conglomerations of pro players. They sound, you know, f- technically fabulous. Uh, I wondered if she had her own regular working group, if it would get a more intimate feel uh, around that. Uh, mm. I don't want to say it's sterile. It's not. It does sound good, and uh, they seem inspired by her compositions. Um uh, yeah, overall, I found it kind of interesting, and uh, I liked her arrangements. I, you, you say arrangements, but I feel like this this is a very uh, composed. These all these pieces are very composed in the sense of like a classical composer. I feel like um, because the music has sort of a direction a lot of times. Oh, well, to it. yeah, like, they it, are her they're her original com, uh, compositions yeah. too. But I think you know when we talk about big band, uh, you, you can yeah. compose something, but it. To me, what makes it uh, unique or worth listening to is what you do with the instruments. And, right, uh, but so. what I mean is, I, I feel like they're like more harmonically complex than what you normally get with a big mm. band, where you get a lot of like really explosive playing. Um, she's the the chord progressions are, are fairly complicated in really all of these works, mm. and I, I feel like the these um, charts might have been uh, taking some um, effort to you know read you know i don't think again i think they'd be hard to improvise off uh mm. you know not in the, in the solo sections of course you just you know go over whatever chords are being presented but it's i've heard like key changes and all sorts of things going on that were um happened only like once in the work and sort of things like that so yeah i don't know what i'm trying to say here but it's it 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 really did sound more planned out than i normally would get from a big band um performance not that that's there's nothing wrong with that but there's a classical element to it to me and that, hmm. that i heard and that kind of kept me going through it there, there was a lot of there was a bit of density and complexity in the in the compositions mm-hmm. yeah that's that's really it you know every, otherwise you said everything else i think yeah yeah interesting worth hearing yeah. and um i mean i, I, I liked like it. that yeah, it was good i like the extended it, it kind of drew the attention it wasn't like kind of a you know yeah, it's not, a, it's not thing. A, it's more of a, a bombastic swing out big band yeah. recording, but uh, like I say, it's more of a, a tonal experience. And it's, you get it's all not very th- boozy. No, it's not very boozy. <laughs> That's why we start. I yeah. put it in the beginning, um, but yeah. you do get that <laughs> because the booze is coming yeah. up. You do get that uh, <laughs> the the nice extra you know tonal extensions with the piccolos and bass clarinets, and then right. the, the having the one section where it's just the bass lines with tuba. Uh, That's cool. Uh, you know, to if you're gonna have a big band, you may as well exploit the uh, capabilities of the players and get some, uh, you know, extra kind of timbres in there. And she's good at imagining those things and how they add to the compositions that she wrote too. So I, I, I thought it was good, and uh, I think uh, I'm glad to see you know someone as you say, uh, if she has sort of a classical background to composing and. Uh, and uh, then arranging in the sense of uh, picking the parts out to apply that to big band is is a cool thing uh, yeah. because I think big big band has a lot of uh, you know a big palette of you know timbre that can be expressed other than just you know blaring trumpets and swinging saxes. So. Yeah, I thought if this is as worked out as say like uh, Maria Schneider, another uh, woman composer, you know, director. Mm. So who works right, with the same right. musicians all the time. So it, it kind of put me in mind of that type of work, even though they're not similar, really. Yeah, but they're yeah, they're, com- they're more complex than you would normally get, I think, as right. far as like planning out the entire work, where right. it's going to go towards the end. 
Right. So. Okay. Um, so moving on to number check to uh, recording two, and uh, this is, uh, well, uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, this is uh, Stephen Five <laughs> K Big Band uh, ah. Prologue, and uh, it's called Prologue. Yeah, which uh, prologue I, to what? We don't know. Prologue. Well, this is what I think because uh, we mm -hmm. reviewed um, uh, his big band album Kinetic back in episode right. eleven, which came out this year. So I think prologue is the prologue to that, which was. So huh. this recording was actually made in two thousand nineteen, although it was just become, it has just become available in October. Uh, now, so go I, figure. Yeah, well, uh, this and also the album following this, I think, are largely digital online releases. Uh, I haven't. Wait, seen... there's another one after this. Um, no, I mean the album I'm going to talk about after this one. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. Yeah, so um, right. I think like the you know this may be just like a they recorded these, but then the distribution and availability was a sort of afterthought, and so maybe uh, this was called Prologue because it was recorded before the previous one, although. Uh, yeah. you know, it wasn't put out or they had extra tracks or I don't really know because there's not a lot of documentation about uh, these online although right uh, it's a shame but it's both like five, CD. five key and uh, the album afterwards you can find a lot of the recording uh, studio videos on YouTube uh, which is really cool so I think that's how they're kind of building up a following with that um, so yeah we really liked uh, uh, kinetic uh, back Wait, in which episode. was his original compositions kinetic right um some some of it was I think somewhat uh, okay yeah I gotta go back um, and look at it I actually he, bought that one I have that on a CD now oh so that was available on uh, yeah on CD yeah that one was this one yeah. I didn't check for yeah. and uh, this one is um, mostly uh, jazz standards here yeah and uh, and with a lot of uh, guests and it's very uh, fun and satisfying uh, recording. I won't go through the full band personnel. You can check that out uh, at uh, Stephen Feifke's own page. I'll just point out the highlighted uh, soloists and other featured uh, players here. Uh, it starts with uh, Jazz Standard uh, Caravan. Uh, however, uh, it's uh, interpreted in a little different way uh, with a, a new kind of syncopated uh, rhythm that's uh, doubled in the piano and bass lines. Uh, the melody is introduced on tenor sax, and then it's carried by the uh, whole sax section, uh, swinging with a lot of nice uh, trombone and muted trumpet counterlines. Uh, the new syncopated uh, underlined rhythm comes back, then it alternates with uh, kind of uh, swinging and new harmonies. Uh, behind uh, the tenor solo, uh, which uh, who was also featured on the previous uh, recording, uh, the kinetic uh, Chad Lefkowitz Brown, and I guess he goes uh, by the shortened uh, name Chad LB, and uh, mm -hmm. the next album is by him uh, as well. So I guess we can call uh -huh. him Chad LB just to save uh, space here. Uh, so he really burns it up here. <laughs> and he does in every solo that he plays, uh, and uh, you, you just said that. I just noticed that now that he that he's the guy. Yeah, his is the other album was his. Jeez. Too. And okay. uh, after his solo, there's a cool trumpet section solely, and then the uh, the band arrangement uh, builds. Uh, he exchanges uh, phrases with uh, Jimmy McBride on uh, drums uh, before it returns to the kind of intro phrase. So. Uh, 
Yeah, it's a well-known tune, but the arrangement and the uh, rhythmic treatment of it is fresh, and it really swings as does everything on this album. Uh, yeah, so, he uh, he has a he has a wide swinging capacity yeah. there. Um, yeah. And um, number two here is uh, my favorite things, uh, the uh, you know, musical tune which uh, John Coltrane turned into a jazz standard. And yeah, this uh, is Rodgers and Hammerstein. Rodgers and Hammerstein yeah. from the musical. Yeah. Uh, here uh, we're going to hear uh, on trumpet Adam O'Farrell, who we heard last week on uh, hmm. the uh, Kevin Sun uh, Bird. Uh, three bird or whatever the name of that was. Uh, we still haven't figured yeah, it out. Yeah, with the no Charlie Parker arrangements. Us, you know. uh, and also uh, know. featuring Lucas Pino on tenor sax. Uh, this mm. one, uh, like uh, Caravan, gets an, a new syncopated original kind of intro. Uh, same kind of idea with the bass and piano uh, doubling up. The trumpets start the melody, uh, joined by saxes. Some cool brass lines that are also mixed with guitar. And then things settle into a trumpet solo by O'Farrell, uh, and <laughs> which he seems to uh, uh, fill his solo with like an interval study. Uh, it's kind of uh, a different solo approach uh, to this one. Uh, then uh, Pino gives us a different feel with his tenor sax. He builds it to a nice climax, uh, and then the screaming band comes in, uh, backing and cheering him on. Uh, there's a syncopated piano and bass interlude with some tasting drumming that resets uh, things back to the uh, uh, kind of original feel to build up the band again. And there's another rhythmic section with some really thick guitar kind of uh, parts uh, and an original outro to the tune that uh, builds to a full band and then a quiet piano chord ending. So kind of an interesting arrangement to my favorite things. Hmm. Um, number three, Don't Get Around Much Anymore. Uh, another old jazz standard favorite. Um, this has uh, Richard Saunders on vocal. And I got to tell you, Richard, you fooled me at first because I thought this was a female vocalist, <laughs> but it's not. It's uh, uh, <laughs> so a young dude uh, here. Um, <laughs> yeah, my notes say this has a female vocal. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess he fooled me too. <laughs> okay. Despite mm. uh, gender misidentification, uh, it, the vocals are really swinging, and uh, Richard has a really nice vibrato treatment, uh, and uh, the whole tune has a nice uh, medium swing uh, behind the vocals, uh, sort of as the in the arrangement, there's great descending trombone line. Uh, and then again, that wonderful combination of muted trumpets and flute uh, for backing. Uh, really great arrangements. And as it goes through, uh, uh, it modulates, you know, as a tune like this sometimes does, but it really gives it a nice lift. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Interesting vocal quality uh, for uh, Richard Saunders, but uh, he really yeah, does. I, I swing. said it was a good. I said it was a good vocal, but you know that's what happens when you don't get the CD. You don't yeah. know who's you know, who's singing. You, you can see this I one on uh, YouTube, uh, though. Right. Um, then uh, number four, I've got the world on a string. Uh, another uh, jazz standard. Everyone knows the Sinatra version. I'm sure um, this one gets a. Uh, kind of syncopated and reharmonized treatment, and the uh, vocal is by uh, Benny Benek the third. I believe he comes from a generation of uh, 
trumpet players. Uh, he's got more of a baritone voice, uh, unmistakably male, uh, but he does get a bit of uh, a, a Sinatra tinge on some lines here. And then um, uh, he kind of soars off into some uh, kind of uh, classic uh, kind of uh, Sinatra-esque kind of uh, things. He gets up high a bit too. Uh, there's a bass solo and a trombone section solely. And then Benek comes back for a surprising extended scat vocal that goes really all out on this tune. It's all about the uh, extreme scatting out here. So uh, he's having a lot of fun uh, with this one. Yeah. Number five. Uh Another classic tune, Stardust, featuring uh, female vocalist Martina da Silva. Okay, so I got it right this time, female vocalist. Yes, okay. and uh, this one has a really lush intro arrangement. Uh, and then uh, she starts on, you know, we, some some versions of Stardust start on the verse, you know, sometimes I wonder. This starts right. with the, uh, you know, from the original full uh, intro to that and uh, yeah De Silva treats this really nicely I really liked her voice uh, she has a good range and a full tone and she has that nice mixture of uh, purity of voice but she can get a just a bit of edge on some notes that come in and I liked that contrast uh, uh, there uh, Fifeke takes his own piano solo it's uh, kind of sparse but with a tasty touch and uh, then when the song comes back to the vocal, uh, De Silva brings it to a great climax with the band screaming along. Uh, there's this great uh, lifting final brass line uh, in there at the end. There's a really fine arrangement of this tune and uh, highlights her vocal as well. Yeah, and I want to say I, I really like it when they sing the intro to these songs. A lot of a lot of jazz standards have an introduction. Yeah, and, you know, um, singers will often just drop them and go to the the really, uh, you know, the the ta- you know, right. the, um, delicious, right. delicious part. <laughs> the, yeah, but you know, I, the sweet part. I've always but I, thought, like, I like that yeah, they have this those, those one, kind of arrangements. We heard uh, what was her name, Samara Joy, do this one with her right. kind of useful and. If it's done with the right female voice, I just think it's so endearing. And uh, or I loved her version of it, but I really like uh, Da Silva's uh, treatment of it here too. I like this too. Yeah, a really nice voice. Yeah, the next one here is uh, another vocalist. Um, This was interesting. I'm just a shy guy, uh, Michael Moenzo. Yeah, and uh, I believe he's a. African born. Uh, he's from Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone. Okay. Sierra Leone. And uh, he's a trombonist as well as vocalist. And then the tune also figures, uh, fe- uh, features Gabe Med on trumpet. Well, uh, there's a lot of clowning going on in this one. Moenzo um, yeah. has uh, fun with the phrasing and ooh ooing here and there but and think, laughing. But I think he's also having fun with his. Accent, yeah, because yeah, yeah, he's got, got a bit accent. of an accent from uh, Sierra Leone. You know? uh, and there's a lot of space that. to do that because the the tune has kind of a loping uh, swing beat arrangement. Uh, it also has some excellent sax uh, sectional solo part uh, with some screaming trumpets. Uh, the uh, uh, mid's trumpet solo is really excellent uh, too. He he does it with a kind of puckish. Uh, articulation in the kind of old swing style trumpet that we don't hear a yeah. lot of uh, these days. So it really matches the theme. Uh, and it goes on and on a, a bit, 
to give Muenzo uh, room to sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, embellish it. And so they do modulate it uh, as it goes on. It gives it another kind of lift to the end. Uh, one note I noticed uh, behind that when the vocal, when they're doing it, there's a little bit of a, a plunger mute trumpet that's yeah. uh, always cool to hear. Uh, so just uh, kind of a fun uh, uh, vamp with vocals and uh, treatment of this uh, tune. Thank God people still listen to old records, is what I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Because you, well, you I mean, really bring, keep a lot a, of those techniques alive. Take a look at this, um, these videos on YouTube. I mean, this is a really young band. I mean, I mean yeah. I'm getting old, but I mean, you know, I used to play this kind of music when I was young, you know, when I was in high school yeah. and university playing trumpet in a big band. And I'm really happy to see like awesome musicians, like a whole band of mainly youngsters uh, keeping this kind of music alive. So that's really cool. Uh, we got uh, seven second wind. Um, this, um, I'm not sure the origin if this is an original tune or not, but it's kind of cool. It starts with an angsty uh, piano riff intro, uh, and it builds with a hard swinging sax melody, a big trombone line uh, that starts out as a real screaming band arrangement. Uh, we've got Andrew Gould here on alto sax, and he takes a searing solo with very cool harmonic explorations. Uh, I really enjoyed this sax solo. Um, and we get a very cool swinging guitar solo from Alex Wintz. Uh, this one, uh, really, that uh, kind of pure-toned uh, guitar uh, that really swings off. Uh, the piano riff uh, comes back with some light and tight uh, subdivided drumming underneath uh, and then builds the band up uh, to the end with some final drum breaks and the requisite scream ending. A uh, very cool mm. arrangement uh, for this one. Number eight, The Way Up. And um, this one begins with muted trumpets that play against some saxes uh, in the intro to a piano section and some horn blasting. It's a fun uh, horn arrangement with a playful melody. It turns bluesy sometimes. Then Fife he gets another solo slot here. He keeps his solo packed with interesting rhythms. Uh, it's backed by trombone hits and building horn lines. And uh, this one features Adam Larson on a tenor sax solo. Uh, his tone is kind of unique, different from the other saxes we've heard so far in a kind of muffled, uh, kind of nostalgic way. Uh, the band builds behind him and swings along into a free-for-all kind of uh, <laughs> bursting solo thing, but that gets uh, strapped together uh, for a more cohesive end. Uh, so that's wraps it up for this album. Uh, another really swinging, hard-driving, uh, cool arrangement uh, album from uh, Five Key. Uh, this band is full of young, exuberant players and uh, a variety of soloists and interesting vocalists uh, that he's drawn in uh, to here. So uh, I think, you know, this is really exciting uh, big band yeah. music, uh, and I'm glad that uh, he's able to assemble these players and, and put out these recordings. Yeah, what you'd expect from a big band album, and it's uh, I'm just it's just like you said, it's really reassuring that all the players are so young. Cause this is gonna go on, you know. Yeah. I like uh, Five Key himself too. I, I told you I bought the uh, Kinetic album. Right. Um, I liked this one too, but that one I just wanted to have because of the the energy, and I really liked the energy in this one too. It's a, it's a young yeah. kind of energy. I can yeah. tell because I don't have it anymore. <laughs> I, yeah. would, I wouldn't play like this yeah. now. 
if yeah. if I were if I played jazz, but uh, so you know, really uh, yeah, nice to hear. The only track you could up. shine on would be "Don't Get Around Much Anymore." Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, although you know, might have gone, but o- what for? O- only, yeah. only if it was being sung to me, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All right. All anyway, right. what and do we got? We got then. Yes, uh, Fife Key. What, what's uh, next on this Joe Rogan length podcast yes. that we're doing? Um, I think this is the longest one ever. Wow, Fife Key compatriot and mm. uh, uh, how can we say uh, saxophone uh, kind of uh, new name uh, exploding into the world uh, of sax, uh, Chad. Lefkowitz Brown, who we mentioned before, I guess he is called by Chad LB. So we'll just call him that to save time at the end of this long growing podcast. Um, has gonna... assembled uh, something unique here uh, with his uh, recording, Open World, uh, which is hard to find out information about uh, anywhere. Um, but you can get a hold of the download, at least. I don't know if it's available on physical media. This is on uh, La Reserve. Uh, records uh, as well. Chad Lefkowitz Brown and the Global Big Band and Global Indeed. This is a Corona uh, pandemic uh, produced recording. Uh, in that, it was recorded separately and um, put together uh, piecemeal from online uh, recordings of uh, players uh, in countries around the world. And um, I won't name all the players uh, of the band, but if uh, I just go through uh, some of the countries, we've got Russia, Peru, Japan, Egypt, Israel, uh, UK, Brazil, Canada, Cuba, Germany, Mexico, South Africa, Switzerland, Estonia, Jamaica, Australia, uh, and uh, others uh, here. Um, so we've got at least we've got about 20 countries here of players around the world who contributed tracks uh, either in, in studios or their own home studios to the arrangements here. And I have to say, uh, the results are pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, I thought so not, too. Not too different from, you know, the way modern recordings are done, uh, you know, with layered tracks in the studio. Of course, I always think, you know, you get the the most cohesive and best sounding things that are done live. Uh, you know, and that's why some of the older recordings are just great with a few microphones uh, and you get that bleed over of uh, the, you know, harmonics and uh, right. the sort of There's spatial kind of characteristics. But that, that kind yeah. of thing is, yeah, that kind of thing is largely gone in most modern recordings and things are done, uh, you know, in track by track basis. Uh, and, it, and if that's the case, then something like this becomes really possible. But I, I thought things are really cohesive and hold together really nicely uh, here. And all led by uh, young sax phenomenon, uh, Chad Lefkowitz Brown from Elmira, New York. Ooh. Is yeah, that there's an uninspiring place <laughs> to, go, <laughs> to go through it all the time. I'm on my way out to Fredonia. Uh, yeah, so, oh, wow. um, yeah. Uh, but... Uh, you know, he's an amazing uh, player with uh, gobs of technique, and he's got this um, uh, global big band uh, recording. Uh, in addition to these international players, uh, we've got uh, some special guests, including Arturo Sandoval, hmm. <laughs> world-famous trumpet player, and to top that, even Randy Brecker, 
uh, and uh, wow. some uh, a series of other uh, uh, players here that I'll mention as we go through tracks to track. And um, yeah, so uh, all familiar tunes uh, here uh, as well uh, as with the five key recording. We start out with uh, a night in Tunisia. Right, uh, the jazz standard, uh, and this one uh, starts out kind of familiar. You know, this tune has a kind of alternating uh, straight and uh, swinging sections. The the kind of bass line has a little bit of a variation uh, from you know just the standard way it's played, uh, but uh, great arranging of the sections um, <clears throat> and on the um, transition. Uh, interlude section uh, it's got a great bubbling trombone it just fits the way that uh, trombone articulation works you know so that's really cool uh, Lefkowitz Brownies is a really good burning solo on this one uh, that goes into a swinging sax solely and then uh, it gets into the uh, Arturo Sandoval uh, solo who's a guest on this track uh, he's got this uh, really nice finger fluttering solo um, the whole band swings it out for a drum break uh, from uh, Brian Carter and then uh, Chad LB comes back uh, for some final flurries and the requisite scream ending from Sandoval for yeah, a, an exciting kind of like a Louis finish. Armstrong type high note you yeah, yeah. squeeze that out he just squeezes know. it out there um, so that's mm -hmm. very cool um, that was very cool track two uh, let's keep the trumpet energy going with uh, Chick Corea's Spain and uh, this is a really nice arrangement. Uh, starts out with a bowed bass intro, softly building horns. You won't know what's going on here. Um, then uh, the sax and trumpet introduce, not the Spain theme, but the Concerto yeah. de Aranjes from Rodrigo. By Rodrigo, uh, yeah, and, which, and I noticed uh, that. I was like, wow. Yeah, uh, <laughs> nice pairing. Anyway. Um, and yeah, when you get, I should mention, um, who do you call it? Uh, Miles Davis did an arrangement of this yeah, as yeah, well. Sketches so of Spain, kind of right. that. Yeah, so sketches, sketches of, Spain. of Spain into Spain. It's a, it's a clever right. um, and logical mm -hmm. connection. Um, uh, once you get lulled into concierto there, uh, suddenly the rhythmic feel uh, comes up in uh, the piano and takes you into Korea's tune. Uh, the melody uh, nicely doubled uh, in the guitar behind the instruments. Um, it kind of screams into stop time uh, with uh, uh, Lefkowitz Brown's tenor solo uh, that turns into a samba beat that kind of gets established there. Uh, he's got a really nice edgy tone and articulation here. Uh, fantastic backing figures uh, in the arrangement under the solo. There's a short interlude uh, into Randy Brecker's uh, always fluid trumpet solo. Uh, his tone is, you know, one of the uh, maybe it's just because I'm a trumpet player, but I I always recognize his tone. It's so unique. Uh, it's got this thick uh, kind of bass, but uh, also an edge to it. And when he gets in the upper register, it's really laser-like. Uh, and he sounds really great here, as usual. Um, there's a rhythmic guitar interlude section. And uh, then a nice piano solo by uh, Holger Maryama, I think, if I'm pronouncing it right, um, the piano player for the whole album here. Uh, and the band builds into a section with a nice tenor cadenza and some final screams. So uh, really clever arrangement of uh, Chick Corea's Spain. A lot um, of screams on this album. Yeah, yeah a lot of screams. Mm, I like them. Yeah. Uh, 
let's see, uh, track three, The Waters of March. And uh, this is a, a kind of interesting arrangement featuring uh, Andrea Motis on trumpet and vocal, uh, a, a musician from Spain. Uh, we get uh, a light percussion intro, uh, then some searing tenor lines that go into the relaxed beat of this familiar Hobeam tune. Uh, and uh, Motis delivers the vocals in a nice breezy way, like you would expect on this tune. Uh, uh, Left Quartz Brown, uh, he, he plays on all the tunes. It's his album, so right, he solos right. on everything. Uh, he fills lines uh, in, in behind the vocalist. Um, the bossa nova arrangement is nice, and uh, Motis also plays a short trumpet solo. Uh, and then uh, uh, Left Quartz Brown comes back for some more soloing. So a little bossa nova diversion uh here that's, yeah she's uh, spanish but she's singing in portuguese portuguese here, right? yeah, yeah yeah so oh. i guess it's not much of a stretch for her uh then we get uh number four the sunny rollins tune uh origin which is nigeria spelled backwards uh kind of a jazz standard uh and this one uh has an original intro uh before you hear the tune uh and then things get really hard swinging when the melody comes in uh well, you probably recognize this melody. All jazz fans know it. Uh, there's a super full band arrangement that really burns. And uh, we get uh, feature uh, alto sax from Miguel uh, Zenon, uh, who has a really clear sound uh, that uh, breaks out into a rhythmically interesting and really well-articulated solo. Um, then uh, Chad L.B. himself rips into another solo of his own here. And uh, then we get uh, a quiet break in the tune and a nice creative uh, trumpet solo from uh, Sidmar Vieira, uh, a Brazilian uh, trumpet player who uh, guests here. Uh, nice trumpet solo. And then the arrangement uh, continues to layer and build to the end. Uh, I was really impressed by uh, Zenon's uh, solo here, by yeah. the way. He, he traverses the entire tessitura of his instrument like just with his incredible fluidity. Yeah. He has this really yeah. fluid kind of way of playing. He's one of those players who has that kind of fluid town, uh, tone that just sort of, um, mm. yeah, it's really um unique uh, sound that makes you sit up when you hear his, uh, his tone. Right. Um, five is India, John Coltrane tune. And... Uh, this one is uh, the sax and guitar double up on the melody, which is kind of cool. Uh, uh, Chad be here solos uh, with a pure tone guitar solo, also from Lionel Lukey. And uh, another new alto sax flavor uh, uh, tone from Makar Kashtsin, uh, uh, a Russian uh, sax player who's now based in New York. So another international voice on here. Um, track six, a bit of a surprise uh, in arrangement. Uh, this is uh, another Sonny Rollins tune, uh, St. Thomas. Uh, but uh, it's introduced with a new kind of uh, original intro. And rather than the Calypso feel, we get kind of a waltzy, relaxed version of it uh, here. Something uh, different from the... You know, that Calypso tune uh, everyone's familiar with. Uh, it's not so Calypso this time, but the arrangement is fresh and it goes in uh, new directions. Uh, Lefkowitz Brown trades off with, um, who do we have here? Uh, Melissa Aldana 
uh, Chilean tenor sax player. And uh, so they trade off a bit. And then she takes over for the main soloing part. And her approach is uh, uh, a bit more smoothy, smoother and more breathy than... Uh, melodic as well. Yeah, melodic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's kind of a fresh uh, change because we hear a lot of... Uh, uh, Lefkowitz Brown's a hard driving uh, tenor approach here, so it's a little bit more uh, smooth here. The uh, band arrangement and uh, solos uh, often hint at the original theme, but uh, the solos and the rest of the arrangement go off uh, with some different harmonic uh, uh, liberties here. Uh, they, you know, really stretch uh, this kind of uh, calypso tune a bit. And at the end, the two tenors come back in and uh, join together uh, here. So I thought it was odd that they didn't do this in the Calypso rhythm because it's, it's named after, you know, St. Thomas where the, um, you know, this kind of music is is played. So I don't know how that kind of fit. Incidentally, we should mention that not only are these musicians from all over the world, but most of the pieces on the, uh, uh, on the album, we're all named after a place, so it's yeah, kind of like are. a trip that around I think the world of it, as well. Yeah, they yeah. are. Um, yeah, yeah. I, did, I hadn't thought of that before, but they are all. Right. Yeah, we've got Tunisia, yeah. Spain, um, right. the waters of March. Uh, it would be I guess, Portugal there, because you know, of the uh, well, Brazil, the Brazil. Bossa Nova. We've got know. India, uh, Saint Thomas, Nigeria, Saint Thomas, um, Nigeria, Stockholm. Stockholm is up. next. Then we've got a French tune, and uh, well, then I guess the concluding well we'll get to that when we get to it um united would be everybody together i guess all together yeah we are the Maybe. world <laughs> nice theme um so seven dear old stockholm <laughs> uh, this is um usually done as a slower kind of tune but uh, this is swinging right from the out of the gate here in a more upbeat version than uh, we're usually used to uh but the arrangement is really great uh another inspired solo from uh chad lefkowitz brown the uh, band turns it into a halftime swing for a really bluesy solo from uh, uh, Etienne Charles on trumpet, uh, which is cool. And he has some nice uh, hits that are well fed by the drums. Uh, another nice piano solo by uh, Holger Marjama from Estonia on piano. Uh, and uh, this is also uh, a bluesy kind of solo, but uh, some interesting uh, harmony harmonies uh, in the runs here. Uh, track eight, uh, an old tune, La Via en Rose, uh, an old French made, song. Made famous by Edith Piaf, in fact. Yeah, Edith Piaf, and yeah. I think uh, even Louis Armstrong sang this one, and a lot of other vocalists. Uh, and uh, here... Um, it gives a feature for uh, Bria Skomberg, a uh, Canadian trumpet and vocalist. And this is nice. It's a mix of tender vocals and a uh, real swelling big band arrangement. Uh, and uh, Skomberg does a nice job on the vocals. And she adds a, a kind of lilting, also lyrical trumpet solo. And when she comes in for the final verse, she switches to French. Uh, yeah. too, oh, she sings nice it in touch. English, we should mention, because yeah. it's a French song. Yeah, yeah she <laughs> sings it in English in the beginning, but she switches to French at the end. Uh, so, yeah, uh, nice treatment here, a uh, nice touch. And then the album closes out with Wayne Shorter's United. And uh, this one uh, starts out with kind of a uh, conga sax and trombone intro. It builds into a full band uh, with the 6-8 feel of this uh, Wayne Shorter tune. Uh, Lefkowitz Brown has his solo spot, 
And then uh, we get uh, Makoto Ozone, a Japanese yeah. pianist uh, with a shot at a uh, solo on the keyboards. Uh, and we get uh, what we needed all along on this album that's been missing through all these sax solos is some trombone from uh, Carla Kohlner uh, from Germany, I assume, uh, because she is a player in the uh, WDR Big Band. Uh, and uh, then <laughs> the final section uh, of Melody has some great brass stabs uh, interjecting. And uh, on drums, uh, Charles Gould gets some uh, drumming spots to lay down behind all of that uh, before the Latin percussion uh, comes in with the riffing to the end. Um, so a really cool uh, big band project. It's amazing that if they recorded this uh, over the internet and piecemeal, piecing uh, tracks together uh, from various countries, that they could get something as swinging and cohesive as this, um, and that uh, people were inspired enough uh, to uh, contribute cool solos to this. The theme is cool. The arrangements are good. And, uh, yeah, it's a really uh, engaging and toe-tapping uh, fun album of big band music. Uh, you should definitely check it out. Yeah, and it's a trip around the world as well. And there you are locked in your house. You still can't uh, – well, you, you can travel now, but you'd have to do a long uh, sort of a quarantine. And yeah. this is a way to just go around the world like we used to, in your head. It's, and it's a really cheerful – record too it's really picked me up this was the one i was listening to when the uh students were walking in and i oh, am yeah. where's was, this uh where's this uh left shocked brown that I guy was happy where does he get where does he get all <laughs> this this tenor sex mojo from from elmira i mean this guy's got like ideas yeah. bursting out and uh, he's like the the new brecker of this generation or something wow fantastic yeah uh really cool trying to get this stuff Ooh. so um, yeah, definitely check this out. Um, I, I think there was only like a a few li isolated lines and arrangements where I thought, you know, from my own experience playing in big bands where like something was slightly like, huh? Like just it, it, it didn't sound like it would sound like if you had recorded the, you know, on ensemble in a studio. But otherwise, I thought everything held together like, you know, really, really well. So to be able to put something like this together... Uh, you know, remotely is uh, yeah, pretty amazing. So big bands, so give that a listen. Yeah, big bands and lots of booze booze and booze it up. I'm a, in, I don't know uh, how many. Yeah, this bottle is disappearing here. I'm gonna have to. Uh, well, I think uh, we're we're now in Joe Rogan territory as far as length goes, and I uh, oh, believe the booze personally. It just wow. uh, made us loquacious. That's right, made us loquacious. That's right. Yeah. So I I enjoyed our loquacity. Actually, there's a lot to say about these really uh, great recordings. I enjoyed Good everything. Music. Like That's I said right. at the beginning of the program, uh, when I was much younger, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff coming up That's in right. uh, upcoming weeks, at least in classical, and I'm sure in jazz too. Russ Russ picks makes the jazz picks, so I'm guessing yes. those are gonna be great. So without further ado. We bid you We'll adieu. let you go now. Yeah. This has been episode Man. 34 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And if you stayed with us this far, we appreciate your attention. Please do subscribe or like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to contest us directly, that would be at Adult Music Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with episode 35 featuring new classical and jazz picks to right. entertain the, 
You're yeah, there's no need mind. to hurry now. I mean, we're already way over time. That's right. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I guess not. So, <laughs> so we're not on TV, so it doesn't we're matter. Not on TV. Yeah, there's no one with a uh, hook yeah. or a clapboard there. So, uh, we'll see you again in episode 35 next week. Be sure to check out the playlist, which will be up earlier in the week on Deezer. We can get all of the music almost a week ahead of the episode if you'd like to listen to it first at username Adult Music Podcast. So we'll see you again next week. Thank you.